We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Episode 16, we're going to do our second director spotlight on Christopher Nolan. One of the uh, biggest influential filmmakers of the last 20 years. And um, it's timely because his newest film, Tenet, is coming out um, in September in America. And we've done a couple podcasts where we talked about Chris Nolan, but they were pretty shitty. And we yeah. didn't really talk about like his filmography and analyze his films like yeah. we did with Quentin Tarantino. But that's what we're going to do today. So um, we're going to get into that in just a minute. Um, also, if we have not been able to see Tenant, so we won't really be talking about Tenant too much. Yeah, just a little we already crazy. have in the past. If you have seen it outside of America, um, don't spoil it, please. Don't <laughs> leave any comments about it. We have not seen it, and we can't see it until theaters open up in this country. So, yeah. so try to keep it to yourself. If you've seen it already, we're sure it's amazing. Um, and before we begin... If you like if you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast, either the the YouTube version, the uh, audio Spotify podcast version on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, share us with your movie friends. We know you have plenty of them or just a couple. I mean, we don't have a marketing department, <laughs> so you guys are just going to have to help us spread the word. Um it's just me. Leo does all the editing. I do all the everything else. And uh, leaving five-star reviews, I know everyone says it on podcasts, but it really helps us get seen by people on podcast audio forms, mm-hmm. formats, and apps. So leave a five-star review, please, especially the ones that are written. Um, and hit the notification bell on YouTube so you know when new videos pop up. And subscribe. Leave a comment. Hell yeah. All right. Let's get into this episode. So Christopher Nolan, just a, a little brief history on this guy was born in London, England in 1970, began making films at the young age at a young age with his father's Super 8 camera. His mother was an American flight attendant and his father was a uh, he's from England was a advertising executive. So he uh, split time in his childhood between Illinois and England. Hmm. Um, he made several short films at university and in his personal life. He was an English major by the way. Yeah, English lit major. Um, and he has big breakthrough in 1998 with the film following which he shot with only 3000 pounds and which, which he he filmed over weekends for a year with his friends as the cast and crew yeah which led to him getting funded from funding for memento because following had a critical acclaim at and, uh, film festivals it was uh, played at the slam dance film festival where he got his biggest recognition for that film yeah um, his brother jonathan nolan is also a filmmaker has often helped Christopher Nolan with storylines and scripts. Um, mm-hmm. We'll get more into him later. He's also the showrunner of Westworld. Mm-hmm. And um, that's just a brief history. The rest is, you know, one of the most successful directors in the history of cinema. Yeah, he's one of the few modern directors where his name comes before the movie. And um, let's get into it. Yeah. So what makes a Christopher Nolan movie a Christopher Nolan movie? I think the first and foremost thing that we should talk about is time mm. and nonlinear storytelling. So Nolan constantly manipulates time and story time in the way the audience perceives it. Mm. We see that heavily in Memento, The Prestige, Inception. Even in uh, Batman Begins. Yeah, and then he does it in a different way in Interstellar. He uses a lot of flashbacks and flash forwards. Yeah. Keeps you on edge as an audience member, and he forces you to uh, pay attention 
more so than other directors. And many times the beginning of movies are usually sometimes the end of his movies, mm-hmm. and you got to kind of pay attention. But we'll get more into that later. Yeah. Um, another big characteristic of Nolan movies are incredibly unique action sequences mm-hmm. and spectacles. Yeah. His his set pieces are are massive and bombastic, but they're real and they're in camera and they feel tangible. And they don't like look like video games like some of these modern blockbusters. Yeah. They look like it's really happening, and that's what makes the difference with his action set pieces. Yeah, and in terms of like unique action sequences, I mean, we're talking about Inception. He put a train on a street yeah. with cars. He, he ran a train through downtown Los Angeles for real. Hitting cars. Yeah. Uh, another characteristic of Nolan are long and complex climaxes, mm. which can sometimes span what feels like half the film. Yeah. Um, especially like Intercept- Inception, Interstellar. You know, all the Batman movies have lots of different co- climaxes going on that take up a long period of time. Yeah, and, and during the climax, there's generally two or three storylines that are uh, happening simultaneously, and he cuts between each one. And then practical effects. Mm. So Christopher Nolan is a big believer in capturing as much in camera as you can. Mm. He uh, very rarely uses green screens. I think in Tenet, he didn't even use a single green screen. It's amazing. Um He'll use CGI, but only to enhance practical shots. Yeah. Um, so he doesn't do completely CGI shots. Like Dark Knight, they blew up that hospital. Mm. I mean, they really flipped that truck. Yeah, they flipped the airplane upside down. Like, they did this for real. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's really um, a big believer in practical effects, realism. Uses a lot of miniatures, actually. Yeah. Surprising. Um, ambiguous endings, another trait. Mm-hmm. A lot of his movies are kind of open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. Clearly, people still don't know what the fuck happened at the end of Inception. <laughs> Um, a, a good characteristic for sure is Hans Zimmer. Oh yeah, who he has heavily collaborated with. The best pairing since uh, John Williams and Spielberg. Probably he hasn't yeah. done all of his movies. He the first movie he did for him was Batman Begins. Yeah, he did not do the Prestige, but since then he's done everything except for now Tenant. Yeah, Michael Caine is in a lot of his movies. <laughs> Michael Caine. Uh, Michael Caine. I won't marry another Batman. Won't marry another Batman. <laughs> and uh, uh, Dead Wives, Dead Girlfriends, Dead Girls. <laughs> And you know neo noir and and that kind of vibe like mystery espionage espionage and international like large scope, um and shooting on film especially large format film like sixty five millimeter IMAX sixty five millimeter filming yeah. um projecting film yeah and he's been integral in the preservation of film along with directors like Scorsese and Tarantino mm. and his belief in going to the cinema and seeing film projected on film mm. which we don't get. The opportunity to do very often anymore, and when we do, yeah, it's I we specifically every time we see a Nolan th- movie, we go to see it projected on film, yeah. Um, and, and just like Tarantino, he writes his movies, yeah. Except yeah. for there's one movie he hasn't written the script for. All right, let's get into the filmography of Christopher Nolan. Let's do it. As we talked about um, a minute ago, so 1998, Christopher Nolan made Following again on a very low budget, mm. uh, as you stated, filmed it during weekends. Yeah, his friends made up the cast and crew. And uh, his producer and yeah. his wife worked on it as well. Yeah. Um, Emma Thomas. Yeah. We, we won't go over this for too much because I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen this movie. It's yeah. really well made. It's kind of um, Alfred Hitchcock vibe. It's black and white. It's voyeuristic. Um, yeah. It's a mystery. But it has a lot of the synonymous Nolan themes of uh, of time change, changing time, um, shooting on film, mystery. mystery. Um, it's about a man who follows strangers mm. and gets involved in their lives. 
And um, there's an accidental foreshadow of Batman in this movie. People yeah. think it like it means that like he knew who's gonna make Batman because yeah. he opens the door. The front of the door has a Batman logo. Christopher Nolan was not a well-known person in the film industry yeah. at all. This yeah. is his first movie. He had no idea or intentions of ever making a Batman movie. Yeah, it's people reading into it too much. It's just it's just completely yeah. It's just a coincidence, 100%. So this was not like a foreshadow. Yeah. At the time, Nolan was making training videos for companies for their employees, yeah. for staff. So if you haven't seen Following, check it out. It's a really interesting movie. It's available on Criterion. You can definitely see, you can probably find it on YouTube too. Mm-hmm. You can definitely see uh, the makings of a, of a talented storyteller in it for sure. Um, it's it's an interesting movie. It's cool. I liked mm-hmm. it a lot. We've seen it a couple times. Yeah. But, um, the uh, lead character's name is Cobb. Yeah. <laughs> and he's also in Batman Begins. Uh, anyway, so following again, we won't spend too much time on it, but but it got critical acclaim and led to him getting funding mm-hmm. from Memento, yeah. which was a seriously remarkable, this was his real debut film. Yeah. And uh, got nominated for two Oscars, Best mm-hmm. Screenplay and Best Editing, which it definitely deserved both of those. Absolutely. And um, it's about a man with short-term memory loss named Leonard who can only remember things for up to 10 minutes, can't form new memories. Mm. And he's looking for the killer of his murdered wife. Um, and he, he goes on his quest uh, with clues that he writes down for himself, either on paper, on Polaroid photos, or mm. tattoos on his body. And Nolan really puts you into the headspace um, of Leonard by showing the scenes of the film in reverse. In so, forwards. In forwards. So just like Leonard, you are trying to figure out what's happening, when, what, when something else happened, what time is now? So you really relate to the way his mind works. Exactly. And it adds to the mystery of the movie itself. Yeah, so there's two separate story threads the whole movie. There's yeah. a black and white story arc, which is pretty sh- coherent. And yeah. It's not. That's, yeah, that's a, it's slow paced. Yeah. Uh, it runs forward. Mm. And then it alternates with a color story arc, which is running backwards in time. Yeah. And it's, it's a real achievement in storytelling and script writing, yeah. in my opinion. Mm. And um, like you said, Nolan wants the audience member to be confused. He wants you to feel like Leonard. You're trying to figure things out just like Leonard is yeah you're in the same position as him yeah you're lost and we get to see what it's like to be Leonard yeah. I mean he he misdirects the audience he shows you information that he'll only show Leonard yeah and he'll, sh- he'll only show us specific information just like Leonard mm. we don't know what's going on we're meeting characters for the first time like Leonard is yeah even though Leonard has known them for who knows how long mm. he's met them a dozen times or more yeah and Nolan doesn't denies this information at specific times like Nolan like uh, Leonard's den- denied information yeah and it can be contradictory evidence, you know what I mean? You can't always trust what Leonard's saying and what he has tattooed on his body. Yeah. And he relies on note-taking and tattoos to, to provide him with information. And that can be, uh, cannot always be trusted, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, so this movie, a common theme in a lot of uh, Nolan movies is revenge. Mm-hmm. There's betrayal. We're dealing with memory and also time. Yeah. And so this is the first time that Nolan really actually gets to play interestingly with time, mm. going backwards and forwards at the same time. And again, we're completely confused the whole time. Yeah. The movie opens with a shot of a Polaroid camera, uh, a Polaroid picture, and um, it starts as a, a fully developed image on the Polaroid, and then it slowly fades into the white of a photo just being taken. And it's a perfect example of Leonard's mind. So we can understand that just like him, he has a memory, and then after a short period of time, it fades away. So we, right off the bat, we have a we have an understanding of who he is and how his mind works. Yeah, for all you millennials out there, we had these <laughs> things called Polaroid cameras, which are these big, bulky things. You took a photo, it actually printed out on the spot, and you had to wait like two minutes for it to, to develop in front of your eyes. And you usually shook it, and if you shook it, you could make it develop faster, but sometimes... I think that would, was a myth, though. No, it worked, but it would blot uh, the ink, and it wouldn't be, come out as crisp, uh, but... um. 
so that that was shot in reverse. Yeah. And so it comes out. So that's why he's shaking it, and it yeah. comes out it was white at the end, mm. which is really cool to see. Yeah. And it's just a it's a great insight into Leonard, the protagonist's mind. Yeah. Where you're taking him backward. You're on a backwards journey with him through his foggy memory. Mm. And so that's a, a metaphor of the whole entire movie in yeah. his mind. Yeah. And this has a great cast because it has Guy Pierce and I think his his uh big star making role. Um, he's fantastic. And then it also has Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano as the two supporting characters. Um, and Carrie Ann Moss actually got Pantoliano on board because they worked together on The Matrix and she recommended him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. He's also big on Sopranos too. Yeah. But and Daredevil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's a good actor. He's very good yeah, actor. Yeah, Guy Pierce knocks this movie out of the park. He's, yeah. He's so charismatic. And that's what I like about this character. He's, you, you can't help but root for him. And he's he's really interesting. Mm. He looks like he's on a good journey. Yeah. But really deep down, when you when you find out what's really going on, yeah. obviously there's gonna be spoiler alerts to people. Yeah. So if you've never seen the movie, you might want to. Twenty years old, so yeah. we we think you've seen it. Um, you end up feeling nothing but pity for the guy. Yeah. And he he's on this journey trying to find the killer, and by the end of the movie, he decides to turn his only friend into his new villain. Yeah. And he doesn't want the mystery to be solved. He wants to keep either solving the mystery over and over again, yeah. or it's just that his vengeance will will never be quen- will quenched, and he'll never be satisfied. He he freezes himself into the story of looking for the killer of his wife, even though he already accomplished it. And yeah, so yeah. he just recreates the the puzzle over yeah. and over again. So he, he gives we, himself a new suspect every time. Yeah. So when we yeah. mean the beginning of the movie is really the end of the movie. It's the end of the movie where you find out that he's already killed John G. He's found the guy, yeah. and now he's he's turning his best friend, well, his only friend, mm. uh, Joe Pantoliano, into his new victim, his but new I, villain. I think it. Uh, but what I think about the movie is, um, he there never was a killer of his wife because I think that Leonard is actually Sammy, um. That uh, that separate storyline of the man who also has the same condition as Leonard, mm-hmm. and um, Sammy um, accidentally kills his wife by giving her too much insulin, um, and I think that is um, Leonard's story. That's his past, but he's changed it to forget to uh, forget about it. So he's separated it from his life and given it a new name, and then so he separated himself from the from accidentally killing his own wife, and he's created this new narrative that someone murdered his wife, and so I think. Him looking for a new murderer every time is him just creating this new false narrative of what happened to his wife. Yeah, That's, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a it's a really visually striking movie too. Especially like this main character wakes up and he can't remember anything. He's just covered in these tattoos, these mm-hmm. weird clues, and and it's it's so cool to see this character trying to figure everything out because I love mystery movies. I love mystery stories. Yeah. And anything involving like a detective work or something like that, I just find fascinating. Yeah. And it's just awesome because again, Nolan does a great job putting you in Lenny's shoes, letting you know how he thinks. Yeah. And just in being specific with what information you learn and he learns at the same time. Yeah. And the constant narration works really well. And Guy Pierce even improvised most of his narration in the movie. And all the conversations on the, on the, on the phone work yeah. and everything, too. And, I mean, half the movie, the guy's in a hotel room yeah. talking on the phone. But mm. it works. Yeah. It, does, it works really well. Because you're always invested in trying to figure out what is happening. It really shows you uh, what kind of a director he is, what kind of ideas and themes he's interested in telling. And you can see, just like Wes Anderson's first movie, the first like um, the, the first uh, instincts that he has as a filmmaker. I agree. I agree. 
All right, let's move on to Insomnia, which I think is a very underrated movie mm-hmm. um, because Nolan's made so many fantastic films. It's kind of buried in the in the abyss of of like yeah. his early filmography, mm-hmm. and um, it's also the only movie that Chris Nolan didn't write the script for. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, when I watch this movie and I, and I, I look back at his career, to me, this movie seems kind of like a test that the studio gave him mm. to see you made this great film. Memento is fantastic. Um, and obviously we, we need new people for big production projects. And this is sort of like your test, like play ball with us. Let's, mm. let's see how you do on this movie, an actual large budget by Warner brothers. Yeah. I think I had 40 million and, um, let's see how you do because you know, we we're trying to reboot Batman soon. Maybe yeah. you're the guy maybe you're not. And play ball, make a great movie, and we'll see what happens from there. And this leads to Chris Nolan basically having control over whatever he wants to do. Yeah. Because he did a great job with this movie, and it was basically a stepping stone, in my opinion, for Nolan's career. It absolutely was. And Insomnia is an American remake of a Swedish film that starred Stellan Sarsgaard. And um, this, the success of this movie, because um, it was a critical and financial success, it made over $100 million box office, um, which especially was a big deal in the early 2000s, um, especially for a dark rated R crime drama by a director no one really knew yeah no one really knew of um, and his success with Insomnia um, is what allowed him to uh, pitch his take on Batman to get Batman Begins with Warner Brothers so he has Hilary Swank Al Pacino and Robin Williams mm-hmm. all in one movie the yeah. three lead roles and that's quite the pedigree to have in a movie specifically for a young director mm-hmm. on his really his second film his second big film his his major studio production um, I think it's a smart casting because not only are you putting the reins of your movie on incredibly talented shoulders, mm-hmm. but you're hitting a lot of different audiences with this film. Yeah. You know, Robin Williams has a very specific audience. Hilary Swank has a specific audience. Al Pacino has a specific audience. I'm sure all these people were now interested in this movie. I think it was an effective way to get people to the movie, to get yeah. to the theaters to see it. Oh, yeah. He understands that casting is uh, the first part of the battle. If you cast your movie well with, with professional actors who know what they're doing, Half of your job's been done. All you got to do is light it now. But um, I think this is one of Al Pacino's most underrated uh, performances. Um, he's absolutely incredible in this movie. And you really he really makes you feel like this guy hasn't slept in days. You can, you can just feel how exhausted he is. You can feel how much guilty he's feeling. You can just feel like how he just wants to, just wants to give up and, and get out of there. And he, he sells it so well. And it's definitely, in my opinion, one of his better performances. So Insomnia Insomnia is about a murder investigation that takes place in a town in Alaska. Al Pacino uh, plays a detective from, I think, New York City. Yeah, this, yeah. And he goes to Alaska to help Hillary Swank, who's in the sheriff's department of the town, um, investigate this murder. And uh, Because it's a small-time police department there. Yeah, so they need help from an outside source, in, um, from a homicide department. And Robin Williams is the killer, but also what happens is Al Pacino accidentally kills his partner um, during a chase um, trying to find Robin Williams. And so he has to keep that under wraps and try to dispose of any kind of uh, evidence um, while also trying to track down um, Robin Williams' character and frame him for the murder. Meanwhile, Pacino's character is also being investigated by internal affairs affairs from his, uh, his job in New York City. Yeah. And so, his partner was his partner was going to testify against him, which would have given him motive for killing him. Yeah. So it's just this great mystery where the killer, the antagonist, and the protagonist, Al Pacino, the cop, kind of become not so much allies, but they're working together in a way. Exactly. They're also trying to stop each other. Yeah. Um. And and no one really makes you feel 
like you're far away from the rest of society in this film, specifically because you're in Alaska. Yeah. And in terms of insomnia, um, most people know that Alaska, there's periods of times where there's no sunsets, there's no darkness. Yeah. So you're entrenched in, in with light for like half the year. Yeah. Or three it's like 22 hours out of the day, it's, it's light out. And um, he opens the movie up with these fantastic airplane aerial shots of just the Alaskan tundra. Yeah. And you're still in America, but you look like you're on a different planet. Mm. And it really, you may, you really feel the isolation of these characters, especially Al Pacino, who's not used to this kind of environment because he's from a big city. Yeah. And you, you're on this horrible journey and dread of him not being able to sleep. He's trying to solve this murder. He's been involved in this murder Mm -hmm. and it's just, it's a really dreadful experience for the character. He's being haunted, you know, and he can't take him. He can't even rest for one moment. And, um, it's a great cat and mouse between him and Robin Williams because, like you said, they have to kind of work together in a way. Um, but also, Pacino still wants to catch him. But he, he needs to find a way to prove that he is the killer. Um, we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And this this film um, showcases, I think, uh, Chris Nolan's first major set piece, which is that the chase between Al Pacino and Robin Williams where they, um, where they run across the logs over the water. I think that's the, the first major action set piece in a Nolan movie. And it shows you how much control uh, he has over directing action because that film is that that sequence is perfectly filmed. Um, you can feel the tension when Pacino falls under the water and he's trapped by the logs and he's trying to find a way out. Um, so you can see the beginnings of the Nolan action set pieces with that sequence. Yeah, and again, neo noir. Nolan loves that kind of vibe in in mystery in his movies. This movie kind of feels like a mystery, like Chinatown. Yeah, you know about a character who's in too deep something that he doesn't fully understand. Mm. And Al Pacino is just constantly in this back and forth struggle of he can't sleep. He's trying to catch Robin Williams. He's involved in a murder. Mm. He's trying to get internal affairs off his back. He's he's involved in corruption back home. Yeah. Um so he's he's just a life in a character full of turmoil and really he just wants to go to sleep. Yeah. That's all he wants. All he wants to do is go to sleep and obviously spoiler alert by the end of the movie he finally gets to go to sleep, and the only eternal way he, sleep. He, the only way he achieves sleep is through death. Yeah, but he saves the day, and he mm-hmm. saves the girl, and he, and he catches Robin Williams and everything. Mm-hmm. Death becomes his only escape from his personal and professional turmoil and yeah. struggles. Yeah, it's a all in all, it's a fantastic crime film. Um, great performances. Robin um, Williams as a villain is awesome yeah, to see. You see him in a different kind of role, and he absolutely crushes it. Um, it's similar to that movie he did, the the photo. Booth yeah, the movie. photo. Yeah, is that called photo? Uh, booth? Four, 28, 24 hour photo. Yeah, twenty four hour photo. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of a similar character. Yeah. Um, but but this Rob, one is a much better made. Yeah, obviously, yeah, much better made movie. Yeah, and you can see um, uh, Nolan getting his confidence with a bigger budget, bigger set pieces, um, more money behind it, um, greater act, great actors. And you can see the beginnings of what he becomes. Let's move on to the movie that really did it all. Batman Begins, which came out in 2005. And Chris Nolan actually is the first Batman director to actually tell Batman's origin story on film. Mm -hmm. And he also helped shape the genre of superhero films in general with this movie and TV shows. You know, I mean, Spider-Man, yes, was instrumental as well. But like Nolan brought this sense 
of realism and putting mm-hmm. these heroes in the real world where it would really be like in this yeah. like gritty dark take on it mm-hmm. which obviously yes influenced marvel not the darkness but the realism yeah and then dc has taken the realism and darkness with pretty much everything they've done yeah and they've taken that nolan approach and this movie solidified nolan as a a, a new voice in the action um genre um and it was such a stark contrast because the last batman movie that came out was batman and robin and so his film was a polar opposite to that and everything you hated about that movie he turned on its head and made you love about this movie this movie became a a definitive uh, version of batman for so many people because it was kind of ruined by shoemaker um keaton did a great job and tim burton but Nolan really brought Batman into um, a believable sphere where you felt like it was a real character um, with uh, authentic um, actions and personality traits within a, a real world that you could believe was, was true. What I love about this film is the way he made it is it's really it's just an origin story. Yeah. I mean, the whole movie, again, is, it's about how Bruce Wayne becomes Batman and how as a damaged youth and a damaged kid how he be- becomes Batman. Yeah. And it's Emotionally and physically. Yeah, and when, when I watched Joker and I was doing notes for this movie, I realized this movie is basically Joker. Yeah. Joker, the one with Joaquin Phoenix, is basically mm-hmm. the, the opposite of this movie. Yeah. And th- th- what I love about it is the opening of the movie has no titles yeah. because Batman has not become Batman yet. The mm-hmm. opening is just that really eerie, the Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. score, and then the bats and the orange and this. Yeah. And then um, at the end of the movie, Bruce Wayne finally becomes Batman. Mm-hmm. And when the movie cuts to black... It says Batman Begins. Yeah. So it's kind of an open-ended, just one simple story. Yeah. Which, yes, they wanted, you know, sequels weren't were up in the air. They weren't sure if they were going to do sequels. But obviously, yeah, they put that Joker card at the end of it. But, like, they weren't planning, like, oh, this is going to be a huge hit. We're definitely going to make another one. They didn't know what would happen with it. Yeah, so I just love the huge confidence of Chris Nolan to be like, I'm not putting the title at the beginning of this movie. Yeah. It, it doesn't deserve to be at the beginning of the movie. I'm putting the title at the end of the movie. And also, you don't see Batman as Batman until, what, an hour and a half into it? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, even... Like when he's the, got the tumbler and he's saving Rachel, that's yeah. the first time he's suited up yeah. and he's doing some action in the city yeah. like big time. But then he doesn't really fully become that hero until he defeats Ra's al Ghul yeah. and he's fighting Ra's al Ghul. And it was just so great to watch how not only does he become um, a, the new version of Bruce Wayne, but how he becomes Batman. Whereas how does he get his suit? Where does that come from? How does, how does Batman build his suit? Where does Batman get his Batmobile? How does he get his cave? Like everything is explained in this amazing, unique fashion where you can see not just the origin of Batman, but like how physically he creates this character in the real world, and you believe it 100%. Especially like how he would need help, especially like obviously. Who Michael would help Kane, him? What Michael kind of Kane people can help Alfred. him? Yeah. But then Morgan Freeman as, as Lucius Fox yeah. is awesome, and it's like, oh, this is actually believable. I yeah. can believe like there's this really smart guy that works at Wayne Enterprises. Yeah, he's the R&D department. Yeah, so, yeah. And obviously they have all this technology and this, these equipment, this equipment and gear, so it makes sense that that's how he would build his suit um, and build all his gadgets. Yeah, and when I love how Nolan addresses like, what if someone found out about this stuff later on yeah. in Dark Knight? Yeah, yeah. And so, I, yeah, I love how you really learn realistically how someone could become Batman. Yeah, and my favorite part about the movie, and it obviously there are storylines in the comic books, whereas Batman is not just a superhero. He, he's a ninja. He's trained by a force of ninjas in the art of martial arts and uh, deception. And it's just fascinating to watch a, a superhero movie where in the first act of the movie, he's training with ninjas in, in Asia. It's, it's incredible. Like, that was the last thing you could have expected in a movie like this. 
And it makes sense to how Batman is physically um, and how he fights and how he's able to avoid detection. Um, and it, it's a perfect character trait and backstory to the character. Yeah, and something cool about the fighting in this movie is um, Nolan introduced a new form of martial arts, which you really hadn't seen on camera. Usually action movies just punches and kicks and stuff like that. But he, he introduced this Spanish fighting method called the Kaizi fighting method where the, um, the, attack, the person in the fight is using basically every part of their body to defend against themselves and use mm-hmm. as weapons. So that's why like, there's this great brawl of, of, of Batman fighting all the people with um at the drug deal at the drug deal yeah. he's just using every part of his body going in circles yeah and then when he's and then um when he's trying fighting uh Ra's al Ghul's guards yeah when he's fighting yeah. Ra's al Ghul's guards so it's it's cool to see like a new style of fighting that yeah. you haven't really seen before that exists in the world but you haven't seen before yeah used by a superhero yeah and Bale's physicality in this movie was incredible and it's this great story because before he sh- he shot this he filmed the Machinist where he dropped down to I think a hundred and ten pounds. And he was a skeleton in that movie. And before Machinist, yeah. American Psycho. Yeah. So he did American Psycho, The Machinist. And so he actually auditioned with that Machinist weight. And um, so he was incredibly skinny and gaunt. And uh, uh, Nolan had to ask him, can you get up to weight for this movie? We need you to get over 200 pounds. And Bale's like, yeah, I can do it. And then he did end up getting well, well above what they wanted. And he actually showed up to set for Batman Begins overweight. Because what he did was he he got jacked, but he was also eating as much food as he could. So he actually put on a lot of fat too. So the the crew was calling him Fat Man. <laughs> so he had to drop twenty pounds of fat before they filmed his shirtless scenes. So he put on too much weight for it. So yeah, then he had to cut. Yeah, then he had to cut like in a month. Yeah, to film. And he said, "I can do it. Don't worry." <laughs> <laughs> but this movie has so many great actors and so many great characters. Like yeah. you're introduced to Killian Murphy as Scarecrow, which yeah. is one of the best parts of the film. Yeah, and Killian almost got. Bruce Wayne Batman. Mm-hmm. He was he read for it and he even dressed in wardrobe and, yeah. and did test shoots with it. But I love that that Chris decided to put him in the film just as another character. And, yeah. and he plays a really good villain. And, and there's this, this funny thing where uh, Nolan says his, his eyes are so blue that he kept finding re- he just kept telling Killian Murphy to take his glasses off to show off his blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great casting for the movie. Yeah. And then Liam Neeson as Ra's al Ghul, which mm. kind of just ignited Liam's action career like out of nowhere after phantom menace yeah yeah so liam like now after yeah phantom menace but then this comes out and he's yeah. just an ultimate badass yeah. does how many action movies since then he i think he's one of the best superhero villains um ever his version of raz al ghul is unbelievable because he's a mentor um he's wise you you trust him you really you really want to you you believe in him as a leader and then he turns on us and we see the true side of him um and he's, he has a fascinating performance and he, Liam Neeson is great in as Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, and yes, this is a superhero movie about from based off comic books, but it's a very articulate script. Yeah, it's very symbolic. It's emotional. You're on this great journey with with a uh, type of character that no one likes to use is yeah. characters with with split versions of themselves or split characters, mm. where you're you're seeing this genius bla- playboy facade of mm. Bruce Wayne split with this nighttime vigilante. Batman. Yeah. And also you're dealing with the turmoil of this of this young kid and the, the yeah. tragedy he went through. Yeah. And you're kind of just taking these three versions of Bruce Wayne, yeah. the split character and putting them all together. Even a version of Bruce Wayne where he's like in college, he says he doesn't want to go back to Princeton, and yeah. a young angry rebellious version of himself yeah. where he almost commits murder. Yeah. Yeah, Christian Bale essentially he plays three roles in this. He plays the real Bruce Wayne, 
the public Bruce Wayne and Batman. And even Bruce Wayne in training. Yeah, Bruce so, Wayne in so training. So he has yeah. so many different selves. Yeah. And, so many and facets Nolan, to the character. Nolan's obsessed with main characters that have split selves, yeah. which we'll get into more. Mm-hmm. The realism that Nolan brings to Batman stems from the experiences of all these different types of Bruce Wayne and all his character flaws. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite parts about the movie um, was the Batmobile, the Tumblr. Because the past Batmans have been, the, the Batmobile has been like sleek and cool and just like, like rocket launchers, r- rocket launchers, like outside, and I don't know. it look it looks like they're designed to sell toys, and uh, and then you see this, and the tumbler looks like it's it belongs on a on a war field in a war zone, like it can just bulldoze through through buildings, and you know what I mean. So the practicality begins there, where obviously if the Batmobile was real, it would have to be insanely strong, um, physical, being able to being how it's able to just uh, jump from rooftop to rooftop. Um, its ability to to withstand any kind of like pounding it takes it was just a great take on the Batmobile and, and to when, blend in. Yeah, and to blend in, and, and none of no one expected that kind of a Batmobile. So I think that was one of the biggest takeaways about how he changed Batman with this. Yeah, and this movie is super fun. And again, back to characters, Gary Oldman as Jim Gordon is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Great, great mustache choice. and just like so many great lines and and moments. With he never Gary read Oldman the script. He never read it. He, well, he didn't. He he got he got he got offered the part and he said yes and then he read the script on the plane ride to uh, the shooting. I don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> so he's awesome as Jim Gordon. Yeah, and um, this movie's a lot of fun. It's like yes, there are a lot of intense moments, great action scenes, but there's a lot of fun beats, especially with Bruce Wayne and Lucius Fox. Yeah, Gary Oldman's pretty funny. In it's it a too. lot of funny. Yeah, there's a lot of good yeah. lines and stuff. And you're beginning to see, again, what Bruce Wayne and what Batman are, could really be like in the yeah, real world. Yeah. And Michael Kagan is Alfred. <laughs> so, yeah, Nolan brought this new take and this new vision to what a superhero movie could be um, and what a Batman movie could be. And I think audiences, this movie didn't make that much money. I think it made under $400 million. But as we'll see when Dark Knight came out, we'll talk about it later, clearly audiences loved Batman Begins and were hungry for the next chapter in this new take. Oh, also, I want to talk about, in terms of practicality, um, Nolan began using uh, miniatures with this film. So a lot of the uh, tumbler scenes, a lot of uh, uh, the jumping on rooftops, um, a lot of that uh, climactic train sequence, um, especially when the bomb explodes, um, those are all miniatures. Because um, he, he obviously, like we said, he likes to avoid digital special effects as often as he can. And he found that it was easier and more believable to build these miniatures for the action scenes um, rather than just digitally making them. Yeah, some great set photos yeah. and set videos of the Tumblr. It's like, I want to say yeah. like the size of this table. Yeah. It's really cool. It's small. It's yeah. huge. I mean, big for like a, a yeah. little toy car. Yeah. But it's, it's really awesome. Yeah. And I think it's incredibly effective. Yeah. And again, it's like it's like Star Wars. Kind of like, let's build a real ship and film it. No matter who cares if it's small. Yeah. Or it's and, like the, the castle at Hogwarts. Let's yeah. really build it. Uh, it's so believable. It's tangible. It's really there. And it has uh, that great ending at the climactic scene where um, the train's about to crash and uh, Batman uh, breaks open two windows and he says that iconic line, I'm not going to I'm not gonna kill you, but I don't have to save you. <laughs> and then he just flies out. And it was just great. It was uh, one of my favorite lines in a Batman movie. So many good lines. Where are the other drugs going? Swear to me. Swear to me. <laughs> well, that's, how, uh, that's one of the reasons why Christian Bale got the role of Batman because with all the testing, he has obviously so many great actors coming in, Killian Murphy, but, but um, Christian Bale was the only actor who changed his voice for Batman mm. because I think... Christian Bale had this great take on the character where he understood when he's Batman, he's not Bruce Wayne anymore. He's not a man anymore. Yeah, he's not he's, human. He's different. He's a symbol. He's and, a beast. Yeah, so he has to he has to rip himself as 
with of as much humanity as he can on yeah. the surface to be Batman. Yeah. And he actually tore out his vocal cords several times, and filming had to be delayed a few times for his uh, vocal cords to heal because he was just shredding them like a, a metal singer. Yeah. And one of my favorite sequences in the movie is, again, we're, we're learning how Batman c- comes to be, and him and Alfred are just, like, figuring out what to do, like, the like yeah, yeah. The, the foundations, the bats, uh, building the cowl with yeah. the separate parts. Yeah, he smashes it. At like, least we'll have spares. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just so fun and cool to see. And then when he finally, the first time, opens the chest for his suit when he's going to save Rachel, yeah. and it's, like, that music, it's, like, the slow-mo and everything. The belt. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, tell him that joke you know. <laughs> and this is, this is the first time, and this is why Michael Caine accepted the role, is because... When Nolan offered him the role, he's like, "Want me to play the butler? I, as I, I don't want to serve anyone anyone tea." And then the reason why he took the role is because Alfred became a full, fully fleshed out character and a father figure to Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. who had an actual impact on the story, emotionally and plot wise. So it was a, a great new take on Alfred as well. And not gonna lie, I think Christian Bale might do the best American accent of any English actor. <laughs> he does. It's he seems like he's American. He, he even uh, during the uh, during the press for this movie, he actually uh, did all of his interviews with an American accent because he didn't want to confuse uh, American audiences. Because he was still relatively unknown. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people had seen American Psycho on the machine. Not that many like, people though. But like, he wasn't a global star. Yeah, like he is now. Moving on to the Prestige, which somehow Christopher Nolan had time between <laughs> Batman Begins and The Dark Knight to make another movie. And he adapted this film from Christopher Priest's novel of the same title. It's about feuding and dueling magicians in the 19th century in London, England. And it's a really great movie. Again, kind of an underrated film of Nolan's because he has so many great films. Mm. And I, I really enjoy this movie a lot. It's a lot of fun. Great acting, great characters, amazing directing. And again, a lot of similar traits of Nolan movies and his trademarks of... Nonlinear storytelling, uh, multiple perspectives, long climaxes, mystery, mystery, neo noir, yeah, and I love it. It's a great movie. This is a great take on on this period of um of uh, history because in the 19th century, magicians were the celebrities of the day. They were the ultimate performers. Um, people went to magic shows like they went to the movies. So it was great to see a movie really capture the essence of what that culture was like. It was great to see two rival magicians who are both at the top of their game and the drama that plays out between the both of them. And what I love about this movie is as Nolan, as the writer and director of this movie about magicians, he himself acts as a magician himself towards the audience members viewing his movie. Just like a magician... Nolan uses manipulation of information. He shows and tells you and misdirects the audience on specific things. So he's kind of a magician himself in this film, in a lot of his films. And he even, ironically, at the beginning of the film, it opens with uh, Michael Caine telling you the three-act structure of a magic trick. Nolan tells you he's gonna exactly what he's gonna do to the audience, and he, he the, throughout the film he does that exact thing. Exactly, it's amazing. So Michael Caine's Cutter character, Cutter. He explains the three parts of every magic trick. The pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. Mm. The turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes something extraordinary out of it. Or makes it do something extraordinary. Mm. And the prestige. The magician brings it back. Mm. So basically, Nolan, like you said, is setting you up and telling you, I'm going to show you some stuff. I'm going to misdirect you. I'm going to fool you. And then I'm going to show you what the whole thing was about. And I'm going to bring it all back around. Yeah. It's like Michael Jordan calling a (laughs) three-pointer. And again, a very complex plot, nonlinear storylines. Um, you're dealing with two characters who 
at the beginning of the movie or in different parts of the movie, they seem to be friends and working together. Mm-hmm. And then the plot basically follows a combination of them reading each other's diaries, mm-hmm. um, which is funny because they both end up knowing that they're reading each other's yeah, diaries. Yeah. And then those those diaries, similar, which is kind of like how the book's broken up. The book's broken up into both their diaries. It's two parts. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, the other storylines are, are, are the feuds between them and what's going on. And you're actually seeing in different parts of the perspectives that the characters are experiencing while reading the diaries. Mm. I love, and another thing I love about this movie is how he, uh, he shows you the the creation of tricks and he, he kind of unveils the curtain to a lot of the tricks, like the disappearing bird trick um, where the bird is in a cage and the magician flattens the cage and the bird disappears and the audience is like, Oh, where'd the bird go? And then he pulls the bird out, of a of a, a hat or something, so the bird was okay all along. But then in the back room after the show is over, the magician's assistant opens up the table to find the the first cage with the smashed, dead, bloody bird inside of it. So we can see um, how how magicians use uh, trickery and illusion to fool the audience. And it's a metaphor for how Rupert Angier yeah. does his trick, which we'll get to yeah. in a little bit. Again. Spoiler alert! Yeah, for this, it's a foreshadow. Yeah, talking about the end of this movie. And an- another great aspect to this movie is that somehow Chris Nolan got David Bowie, uh, and he's so good. And he played uh, a perfect Nikolai Te- Tesla. So good. And uh, Bowie actually turned it down, um, and Nolan flew out to him and, uh, and pitched him the movie in person, and told him that he's the only person who could actually pull this off because he's so larger than life. And then Bowie accepted the role. He's and so good. He's it? great. And like, that's really what Nikola Tesla was like. He's yeah. like this handsome Eastern European man who's very strange, incredibly intelli- yeah. intelligent. And, and in the book, you know, it's like he lived in the bottom of this mountain in the middle of America mm. in Colorado. And I think Colorado Springs. Yeah. I think it's where his, his place is. And it's just so cool. And having a, having a historical figure in a movie like this really adds to the authenticity and the realism that you're like, you know this is a fictional story, but it kind of brings a little realism to it. Like, oh, these events, maybe they did happen. Yeah. And the thing with magicians and their tricks, um, no matter how elaborate or magnificent the tricks are themselves, generally they have a very simple explanation yeah. for the way it's done. And throughout the movie, you're wondering how these people are pulling these tricks off and and again, Nolan tricks you with this movie. Yeah. And um, basically, they're both competing over who does the best version of the same trick. Yeah, the, t- and, the disappearing man. So, yeah, Alfred Borden comes up with it first, the disappearing yeah. man act. Um, or is it the... The teleporting man. The teleporting they, man. They, they both call it different things. Yeah, it gets yeah. changed different things. But essentially, things. The, the magician disappears on stage, and he winds up in a different area of the... Uh, of the uh, Opera the stage. House, the yeah. stage. Well, yeah. so Borden does it for first. He goes in the door, bounces the ball, and comes yeah. out another door and catches yeah. it. And so basically they're both competing to who does the best version of yeah. it. And you're seeing their feud where they're disrupting each other's acts yeah. and they're sabotaging each other's acts. Mm. And um, even Borden a few times sneaks into Borden's acts himself. They're trying to figure out what the other's doing. Yeah. And um, they're both basically on this endless fight because um, Alfred Borden was partly responsible for uh, Rupert Angier's wife's death in the film yeah. from drowning. Which caused the friction between them. Again, another metaphor for the ending of the film. Yeah. And so, again, magic tricks are very simple. And in this film, when we finally find out what's going on, and we really, in Borden, at the end of the movie, he confronts Angier, and Angier's always been trying to figure out how uh, Alfred Borden does his trick. Yeah. And he even has Scarlett Johansson, his, his assistant, go to try to spy on, yeah. on um, Alfred Borden, who he ends up falling in love with. And she won't tell him the, the, how he does the trick because she doesn't know either. Yeah. So the whole movie, Alfred Borden has tricked you. Yeah. He's tricked the audience, and Chris Nolan uses him to trick the audience as well. Just and, like how the, uh, the the Chinese magician 
tricks the audience. Yeah. His whole life is is the act. The act. You get to live it every second, and it's the most simplest answer you could ever think of. And what happens is Alfred is actually twins. He has a twin. So, yeah, so two. his assistant, who you never yeah. really hear talk, he um he's he's a different version of Borden. Yeah, and, and so what happens is they both share the life of Alfred, and in the book. Each twin is at, each twin. Their names are Albert and Frederick, which forms Alfred. Yeah, the name of the character. And then after that's revealed, obviously this movie's better on second and third viewings. And the more times you watch the movie, the more easily it is to identify which twin is in the scene, um, because one twin is a uh, more volatile, a um, little high strung, uh, more passionate. And the other twin is uh, more more modest, um, more caring and, and considerate. And you can really see the, the, the at first it's subtle, the differences in personality. But then upon second and third viewings, you can really see, you can easily identify, oh, it's that twin. Oh, it's this twin. Because one's married to Rachel McAdams' yeah. character. I mean, um, Rachel, um, Rebecca Hall. Rebecca Hall. So because one's married to Rebecca Hall's character and she consistently says, today you don't seem like you're in love with me. Yeah. Today you're in love with me. Yeah. Or today you mean it. Yeah. And then the other twin is in love with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing because these two were so committed to their craft of magic that they sacrificed um, living a normal life in order to share one life in the pursuit of creating um, an amazing magic. Yeah. And again, we towards the end of the movie, the movie kind of takes over as Rupert and Jeer's movie. And he's yeah. coming back and he goes to horrible deaths in acts of evil to achieve his goal of having the greatest magic trick of all time and beating and yeah. besting Alfred Borden. Yeah. But what he never understands is the simplicity of Alfred Borden's yeah. trick. It's, it's, it's just a simple trick and has a simple explanation. Yeah. But Rupert Angier takes it to this new level where so towards the end of the movie, or at the end of the oh, movie... Oh, yeah, explain how it's done. So um, Alfred Borden gets tried for the murder of Rupert Angier because Rupert Angier plays a trick uh, on stage and Alfred Borden tries to get backstage to see how he's doing it. Mm. And um, because it's an amazing disappearing trick where he ends up on the back it's of the impossibly, auditorium. Yeah, it's an impossibly effective. Trick. Yeah. And um, he knows for a fact he doesn't have a double. And so Alfred gets caught in backstage where the trick that... that um, so what happens is Angier disappears on stage and he shows up on the back of the, uh, back of the arena and the audience is like, oh my God, how did that happen? But what really happens is uh, a, tri- a trip door opens up underneath his feet and Angier falls into a water tank and drowns. It's yeah. locked. So Alfred Borden doesn't know what's going on, and, yeah. and, and Cutter catches him and sees yeah. him. And he thinks that he. Alfred's Borden. actually trying to break the the break the glass to to free him from the water. Because when he falls into the the water tank, it locks itself. Yeah. On on on, on it instantly locks. It's designed itself. to lock itself. And so later on, uh, Alfred Borden goes on trial for murder, and he gets hanged. Yeah. And um, Rupert Angier ends up. Uh, taking his, his daughter and raising his daughter. Mm-hmm. But we, he, so Nolan hints that Angier has created clones of himself with yeah. the hats yeah. and the rabbits. Yeah. and um, Not the rabbits, with the hats. Yeah. So there's cats. Hats. They find out that there are hats strewn all over the, the yard because David Bo- Nikola Tesla doesn't think his magic tr- or his uh, machine works yet. Yeah. And so again, the end of the movie, um, Alfred, even though he was just hung, finds Angier mm-hmm. and he shoots Angier. And then... Alfred Borden explains everything to him. Mm-hmm. And this is where Chris Nolan explains to his audience everything. He's shown you so many tricks. He's shown you so much misdirection. And you're confused as an audience member. And now he's revealing the trick. He's doing the prestige. Mm-hmm. Where Borden tells him that he had a twin the whole time. It was a simple solution. And then 
he learns that Rupert Angier, what he's been doing is he's been cloning himself and killing himself at the same time. Yeah. So every time he goes on stage, the trapdoor falls, he drowns himself, and then a new version of him reappears at the back of the studio. Mm. And so in the way that... So Nolan gives you two reveals at the end of the movie. He reveals Alfred Borden's trick, and then he reveals with the very last shot of the film what Rupert Angier has done. Yeah. With the shot of Rupert Angier drowned in the tank, and then there's a shot of an endless supply of these tanks. Yeah, this is rows of these tanks with Angier in them. So he saves this prestige. He saves the the reveal of the magic trick for the entire movie until Mm. the very last shot. Yeah. And it shows the true nature, the conflicting nature of both these two characters where Alfred would never, the twins would never do something like that. Kill for the magic trick. They're committed to their craft, but they're they're too good and decent. They would never slip to to the... ruthless nature of Angier where he's willing to kill and even kill himself in order to create this magic trick. Out of selfishness. Yeah. Whereas Borden and his twin share everything. Yeah, they're they selfless. Sh- they share the stage. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they switch, they take turns who's going to come out the other side. Yeah. Rather than Rupert Angier was led to jealousy of his double because his double was getting the standing ovations yeah. while he was at the bottom of the stage. Yeah. So, so his own his own pride and his own ambition destroyed himself. And destroyed the lives of Alfred Borden. Yeah. And again, with The Prestige, we're with another trademark of Chris Nolan with split selves, characters with split selves, where there are different versions of Alfred Borden with him and his twin. Rupert Angier has different versions of himself pre and post uh, magic trick where he ends up basically selling his soul to become the greatest musician in the world. And you see him before and after that turmoil and what he's done. Mm. And yeah, love this movie. Yeah, Let's move on to... Probably the best movie Chris Nolan's ever made, critically acclaimed, has changed cinema for sure. The Dark Knight exploded into theaters. 2008 instantly became the most successful superhero movie of all time. It made as much money as Batman Begins' entire domestic run in six days. Absolutely insane. Um, this movie kind of just changed that whole like weekend box office. Like You got to get as much money as you can in the first three days. Yeah. And like the whole... Oh, what's their weekend going to be like? What's yeah. the first weekend going to be? Opening? It's made 150 million. Insane. Yeah. And um I love the opening of the movie too where just he opens it up with a Christopher Nolan take on a bank heist yeah. where you he effectively introduces you to what the film's going to be like, mm. but also the main antagonist not only by showing the Joker's he hides the Joker's face for the whole scene. You know it's him and you're so cur- he builds that curiosity where you just you you dying to see what he looks like. Yeah. You hear his voice. Yeah. And then um, once he reveals his voice and reveals his dialogue, what he really looks like, you also get a sense of the Joker's character yeah. through his actions throughout this whole heist in terms yeah. of like him being a merciless killer. He's selfish. He treats all people as expendable, but yeah. he's also really smart, too. He's incredibly intelligent, and um, his plan worked out perfectly as he, as he, as he executed it. But you can, you can see how, how much he enjoys killing when he first shoots that, that first guy in the bank, and he just kind of watches him suffer. Mm-hmm. You can see that he's just from, he's he got a mask on, but you can tell that he's like really enjoying the moment. You know, Curious. So yeah, you can see that the sociopathic nature of him right there. And so, and then Batman's parts opens up where he's, you know, he's he's Batman. He's yeah. established in the city. Criminals the are world. afraid of him. Yeah. And um, again, he foils a, a drug plot and drug deal with Scarecrow, Scarecrow shows up. It. Yeah. And um, I love this movie because Nolan really explores the paths of heroes and villains yeah. in The Dark Knight. In the fine lines that heroes specifically walk, 
in terms of how easily they can become villains themselves. And what can break them. Yeah. Whereas so in Batman Begins, the main theme of that film is fear. And then for Dark Knight, the main theme is chaos. And Joker is chaos. Yes, yeah, so Joker creates the chaos that can that can bend a person to become uh, the opposite of what they want to be. Yeah, Joker's in this film is the master manipulator. He knows how to take yeah. a hero's moral code and turn it on himself and how easily he can become a villain, just like we see with Harvey Dent. You know, Harvey Dent is Gotham's white knight. He's the yeah. best of everyone. But the Joker turns him into Two-Face and turns yeah. him into an evil villain. Yeah. And he, he also, one of his other goals is to get Batman to break his code, to kill someone. And everything he does is just to try and coy Batman into that act. So it's this, this mental cat and mouse game between them where Batman has to try and find a way to stop him. But also, if he doesn't kill someone, other people are going to die every yeah. day. And this is the movie where, you know, Batman becomes the Dark Knight. Yeah. Meaning he doesn't be, he's not a clear cut hero anymore. Yeah. His morality is in question and he takes the fall for Harvey Dent. So he's no longer a hero, a hero vigilante. He's yeah. now kind of just like a, a vigilante criminal. Yeah. He's the hero that Gotham deserves. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be whatever Gotham needs me to be. <laughs> and then um, in terms of the Joker, I think we should talk about it for a little bit. Um, it was a, a brilliant concept to, to effectively turn the Joker into a, a, into a terrorist. He's terrorizing the city. Um, and there's this great scene where he has that recorded video of him torturing the guy. And Bruce Wayne and, and Alfred are watching it on TV, and it feels real. Because if they're wa just watching footage on television, it makes it feel like, oh, this is a real person. It's really disturbing. It's very disturbing. But uh, the Joker, I think it was obviously my favorite take on the Joker. And um, Heath Ledger and his performance is one of the reasons why the movie is so good. Oh, he, he's it's, his best performance is one of the best performances I've ever seen on screen. Yeah. And his casting... It's kind of similar to Robert Pattinson just getting cast as Batman, where yeah. there's a lot of criticism of it. It's like, oh, the guy from Twilight is going to be Batman? Like, yeah. people are like, what? But Robert Pattinson's a very talented actor. Yeah. It's like Heath Ledger. People forget when Heath Ledger got cast as, as the Joker, people were like, I don't want Heath Ledger as the Joker because yeah. he's coming off Brokeback Mountain, which is a very good movie. Yeah. But, you know, that was like 2004, yeah. 2006. Yeah, people were less accepting. People, yeah, a less accepting culture we were living in. And so people are like, I don't want the guy who's just in Brokeback Mountain to be the Joker. Yeah, I don't want the Gabe Cowboy to be Joker. That's horrible. But people yeah. don't realize that these these are just actors. Yeah. And Heath Ledger, incredible actor. Yeah. And Brokeback Mountain's a great movie. Yeah. And so as soon as people saw the images of the Joker. Yeah. And you got They're like the teaser it. of You heard like, his voice. His voice. And like, I think they released a teaser of just his just audio. His voice. Yeah. And his laugh and yeah. how creepy he was. And then you got the first trailer, and people were like, "Oh my God, I love Heath Ledger as the yeah, Joker. It's gonna be amazing!" Bullshitters. And now it's everyone's favorite rendition of the Joker, yeah. or like one of their favorite performances ever. Yeah, Heath Led. Yeah, and Heath Ledger, his he crafted such an incredible character. He actually uh, lived alone in a hotel room for six weeks, and he kept a diary as the Joker um, in preparation for this role. And also, I think there was a false reporting by the media after his death, where the media took this ridiculous story saying that acting as the joker caused him to form mental instability and caused him to die a lot of people believe that and so many people false. believed it but like people don't understand there are so many accounts of people on set and christian bale even said um he heath ledger had so much fun every single day and he he enjoyed it immensely 
Yeah, Heath yeah. Ledger's death was a tragedy. Yeah. It had nothing, nothing to do with him being Joker. Yeah. Yes, he went into immense depth on the character. Yeah. And he probably had to, you know, have some disturbing moments with himself to play that character. Yeah. But he was done filming. Yeah. He was working on another movie. Oh, yeah. This was, he died months and months after he wrapped on the film. Yeah. So he was past the Joker. Yeah. Joker was not even on his mind anymore 100%. besides he had finished. And so Heath Ledger, his death was a tragedy where he had... He has multiple doctors, and yeah. he had was taking multiple prescription medications. And obviously, when you have multiple doctors and they're not communicating with each other what you're taking, he had an accidental mix overdose of medications. Yeah. So that's how Heath Ledger died. He yeah. didn't go crazy from playing the Joker. Yeah. Again, Heath Ledger was already working on other projects, yeah. and he was filming another movie. So he it was nothing to do with him playing Joker. 100%. Um, common misconception, and I, hopefully over time, a lot of people who believe that still eventually maybe change their minds. Um, but we'll see. That goddamn mainstream media. Jesus. They just need a story. <laughs> but um, he was so terrifying in this role, and he was actually, um, in the first scene he acted in with Michael Caine is when he it disrupts the party on the, at the penthouse. And when, in order to film the scene, they didn't allow Michael Caine to see him in makeup beforehand. They wanted a real reaction from Michael Caine of seeing him because what happens is when Joker enters the dinner party, um, uh, Alfred's right there. He's the first person he sees. And what happens is when the scene plays out, Michael King goes up to the elevator door and it opens and he was so terrified by Heath Ledger that he completely forgot his lines <laughs> and he froze. <laughs> I would too. And man. Michael Caine is a professional actor of 60 years. Yeah. It's amazing. I don't blame him because the, the image of Joker in this movie is terrifying. Yeah, it's, it's great. The wardrobe we talked about in the other podcast, but in terms of like having the look and aesthetic of yeah. realistic Joker, what would it really look like? This war paint, like what would it look like if someone was really putting face paint on themselves? Have it on to their go hands, to battle, it gets and to dirty, go commit crimes. Yeah, yeah, it's grimy. By the time he's in the prison, he's just it's fading and and he's sweating. And um, that he has this tick where he's constantly licking his lips. Heath Ledger actually started doing it um, in between takes because the prosthetics were starting to fall off the glue. So he was he would like lick his lips to keep the glue moist. And then he decided, oh, that's actually a cool character trait. So he put it into the performance of the movie. So that's why he's always licking his lips like that. Yeah. And the Joker ends up becoming a contradiction of himself because he's so hell-bent on, on not destroying society, but showing society what it's really like and mm -hmm. what it has done to the city and what, what Gotham is like and what people are like and yeah. how people are inherently bad and how people in Gotham are inherently evil and selfish mm -hmm. when really... At the final climax, when he has the people on the two ships, and he has he has the competition where one of them has to blow the other ship up, yeah, and no one decides to do it, and the people yeah. decide to not blow each other up, I mean, either one up, and end up taking the fate of blowing of each other blowing up, yeah, and so he miscalculates what the good in people. It's the first and, time a plan of his fails. So yeah, yeah he, he completely contradicts his entire actions because he doesn't understand people. He doesn't. He doesn't understand empathy. He doesn't understand love, and he doesn't understand humanity. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of um, of Batman, you really get to see the struggle within him of trying to be this symbol of good and justice that he set out to become. But he also learns when he comes up against a villain, villain like this, he has to, he, his moral code comes into question because in order to stop someone like this, he has to become uh, a bit like them. And he has to do unsavory things in order to, to beat them. So it has this internal struggle with who he should be as Batman and how he should um, carry out his vigilantism. Yeah, because Joker has already turned Harvey Dent into a villain. And yeah. he's scared of himself becoming a villain yeah. from the Joker's manipulation. Exactly. And dude, like the best part of this movie, the first time I saw it, the action sequence from when Harvey's um, in police custody. Oh, yeah. And Batman has to save him from Joker. Yeah. 
Holy freaking shit, It's man. incredible. Like, what they did in the filming of that scene is absolutely mind-blowing because it's pretty much all practical effects yeah. from everything going down into the under tunnel yeah. and blowing up those trucks and blowing up the police cars and, yeah. and driving the tumbler underneath an 18-wheeler. That's actually a miniature set. Yeah. So it was a miniature tumbler crash into a miniature dump dump truck, mm-hmm. and it was they were each, like, this big. Huge. Yeah. And it was just like it looks in person in the film. It looks like it's large scale. Yeah. And it this great the great moment where Batman's driving the tumbler, and then the the eighteen wheeler pulls up, and it says slaughter is the best medicine. And the the door opens, and Joker's got a shotgun. And he's just like in a rocket launcher, and it's like this is amazing. <laughs> and what I think what really seals the deal for that action sequence is there's no music. Yeah. All you hear are are the physical moments of the scene itself. There's no Zimmer score at all. And just hearing the, hearing the sound effects of the action scene really brings you into the moment and makes you feel like you're there, especially because we saw it in IMAX. Yeah. And then anyway, they flipped the 18-wheeler, which was actually an 18-wheeler they flipped, Yeah. Um, which is very cool. Not the way they do it in the movie. They do it with the explosives. Yeah. But um, th- to actually capture that on camera was stunning. It was unbelievable when the, it, the, tr- the truck just lifts completely up and then it's just silent for like a, a couple of seconds yeah. and then it just smashes onto the pavement. Yeah. It was um, It was like... Oh my God! You never seen anything like it before. Yeah, and it's, you know it's real. And speaking of Hans Zimmer, we didn't even bring up in Batman Begins. Amazing scores. Batman Begins is, is one of my favorite scores to listen to. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And the cool thing about that is all the tracks are named different uh, uh, variations of bats. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gino Genos of bats, and then Dark Knight, completely iconic score. And like Hans Zimmer did this great this great thing with like he's like trying to figure out the themes of the Joker, and he has yeah. like he's like. Uh, clapping pencils against each yeah, other. Yeah, since Joker kills the guy with a pencil, he used pencils for a percussion yeah. instrument. So there's just so many, so much great music in this film. Yeah, and again, also the time not to use music. And again, Chris Nolan's known for using heavy amounts of of uh, orchestra scores in his films. Yeah, but I love it. I think I think it, it helps pace the movie. And yeah, helps keep you intrigued. And for him, two and a half he, hours. yeah, and just like the first one, he and James Newton Howard each made the score together. Whereas James Newton Howard did all the Bruce Wayne themes. So whenever Bruce Wayne is on screen, the music that's being played is generally made by James Newton Howard. And then when Batman's on screen, it's Hans Zimmer. And they it shows the contrasting nature of Bruce Wayne and Batman, which works perfectly. And there's a confusing part of The Dark Knight I think I, I hear about a lot in comments and stuff where where um Jim Gordon and Batman have to go save Rachel and Harvey mm-hmm. and um Joker tells Batman the address that he says is Rachel yeah and Batman's like I'm going to save Rachel but people are always like why didn't he go save Rachel why did he go to Harvey Dent it's because the Joker is only only hell bent on chaos yeah. and destruction that he purposely gives them the wrong addresses yeah. so that Batman he knows Batman will make it in time yeah. but he purposely has Batman save Harvey Dent because he's trying to break Batman down yeah. and trying to turn Batman into a villain yeah. by killing Rachel because he knows the cops won't get to Rachel in time. Yeah. I didn't find that confusing, but I can see other people can because they're people not listening. Yeah, other people don't get it. <laughs> but but they don't get the character of the Joker yeah. does it on purpose. Yeah. Um and speaking of that, I think there are so many iconic scenes in this movie. And I think one of the most iconic scenes and images is Joker and Batman in the interrogation room together. There's this this scene you've never seen it happen before where these two iconic characters are just sitting at a table and then they're just having a conversation. It was so fascinating to see these two opposite sides of the spectrum conf- conflicting with each other. But also how similar they are. How similar they are. They're, ex- they're the, same t- the opposite sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. And then to see him try to physically brutalize the Joker, and then we see that it, nothing can physically hurt the Joker. He can take as much pain as he wants. Um, it, so there's nothing Batman can do 
to to make the Joker give in to him. And then it's in comparison to Joker and Harvey Dent in the hospital room, yeah. where Har- where he finally breaks Harvey mm-hmm. by by giving him a gun, yeah, with a bullet inside of it, and telling him. And he's he's Joker's willing to just die on the spot, yeah. for his for his ambition and yeah. his goals and his will to break Harvey Dent and turn Harvey into a villain, which he succeeds, which which gains Harvey's trust, yeah. by letting him try to kill him almost, yeah. And well, man, it's good. And which, but before that, it was one of the probably one of the funniest, probably the funniest part in the movie is when um Joker walks into the hospital room with a, a woman's wig on and he takes off his mask and he's like, <laughs> hi. <laughs> <laughs> But then after that, obviously another iconic part of the film is the hospital explosion, where it's really done in one take. Um, they set up a few cameras around the area, um, and even a camera in the bus. And then you just see Heath Ledger walk out. He's pressing the button, and it's not working. He's like, what the hell's going on? And he actually, they actually practiced this take, I think, like almost 20 times because he wanted to make sure it would be perfect, and he, he would do it right when, when they would blow up the hospital. And... He nailed it, and it's so funny. And then you have this comedic performance, and then all of a sudden you watch this incredible explosion of a real building really being blown to bits. Debris really flying at him. It's yeah. fake debris, but yeah. it's debris flying at him. Yeah, they put like machines inside of the building to shoot, shoot out styrofoam, but it looks real. And then there's that, if anyone's ever seen it, there's the, the alternate take of the camera inside the bus during the explosion, and inside, you can find it on YouTube, the Joker goes into the bus and he's just like sitting in a seat, like bouncing around with, with joy as the hospital explodes in the windows behind he him. He doesn't even look back. He doesn't at even it. look at it. He doesn't even look yeah. at what he's done, this he, massive explosion. Yeah. He doesn't even care. Yeah. And there are things that like he doesn't care about that so many other villains would care about. Like when he burns that giant pile of money and the other the other criminals are like, What are you doing? You're crazy. And he's like, I don't he pretty much doesn't care about money. He just takes what he needs for his purposes and then that's not what he's interested in. He doesn't care. Just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that Alfred line is a perfect um, description for who the Joker is. Yeah, he and just, again, Dark Knight here again to go back with Batman begins in terms of how Batman becomes Batman. Yeah, now he's Batman's established. Now, what's his life like as as Batman? Like, mm. what's the new foundations underneath the mansion look like? Yeah, what's his new layer look like? That new little uh, area has like underneath downtown Gotham with like yeah. all the lights and everything where he has. Has more of his tools and suits and stuff. Yeah, and it's really cool to see because like, the bat the Batcave is under construction. Yeah, so yeah. Like he's like a finished, almost a finished version of Batman. Yeah, and his technology and Fox is in on it. Fox knows he's Batman, but then you know they always completely hint at it. Yeah, but um, now you're seeing this this formed version of Batman post Batman Begins. Yeah, the next big piece of technology that I love in this movie is the Bat Pod. It was such a fun vehicle, um, and it, they they built it so practically into the story where it is built into the actual tumbler and breaks away from it um when the tumbler is damaged and so it's believable that he has this thing and the and the wheels are the tires are actually the tumbler tires and um the sound effects they created with it i think they use a lamborghini engine to uh create the effects for it but it's it's an incredible um motorcycle um and it's so fun to watch in the chase scene and so this movie ends with batman Becoming Dark Knight mm. and taking responsibility for Harvey's murder, yeah, and his murders and what he's done, and um, it leads up to the Dark Knight Rises, which we'll get in a little bit, where Batman is now a criminal on the run. Yeah, what really sets it apart is there's a lot of iconic imagery, like the hospital exploding, like Batman at the end. The last shot is him driving on the Bat Pod up the tunnel, and then he goes into the light. Um, I think 
probably my favorite shot of the entire film and maybe my favorite Nolan shot in all uh, all of his films is uh, when after Joker escapes and he's hanging outside of that police cruiser and he's just whipping his hair around whipping his hair around in the wind and the car then there's police cars um, chasing behind him and um, it's an amazing image and I think it's uh, probably Nolan's best image and then also one of my other favorite shots is when Batman catches Joker at the end of the film and he's hanging from the, the wire um, Nolan takes the camera and, t- and t- um, completely tilts it upside down and by turning the camera upside down now the Joker is right side up on screen facing Batman and it's just a brilliant camera technique they used in it so there's a lot of great filmmaking a lot of great cinematography and iconic imagery in this movie that really puts it on another level and is a testament to why it will stand the test of time and again just like Batman Begins it's a lot of fun funny moments great yeah. characters great lines tons of one-liners and like little interactions between Batman mm. uh, Lucius Fox and Alfred and it's yeah. it's a great time and we got um, Maggie Gyllenhaal was recast yeah. as um, she did a great job yeah for uh, what's her name Rachel Rachel Rachel, Rachel. it's a damn shame that Matt Damon could not uh, accept the role of Harvey Dent for this film because was, of conflicting yeah. schedules he was originally offered it yeah but uh, I mean we could talk about this movie for hours yeah so let's move on and maybe we'll devote an entire episode to it someday oh, yeah, but, definitely. but let's move on to the next movie in Christian, um, Christopher Nolan's filmography which is Inception in 2010 again how does he have time to fit these in he fit in Inception because he doesn't have a phone <laughs> Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises and so when Inception came out and I saw it. I had to say it's probably the most ambitious film I'd ever seen in my life. And Nolan created a, a giant, mega-budget live-action film of something we've never seen before mm. on screen, practically. And um, this movie came out 10 years ago, and it still leaves people wondering. People are still talking about the ending. But it's, um, it's such a unique take on the espionage thriller. Um, it's international, so the scope is huge. The cast is amazing. The action is gigantic. Um but realistic because of its practicality. The score is amazing. Um, and this became an iconic movie of that year. And so Nolan takes this complex story of entering a person's dreams and planting an idea in their mind, and he turned it into a heist movie. Mm. It's like Ocean's 12 <laughs> in your mind. It's insane. It's so cool. It's great. And this film, obviously, it's about dreams, and dreams are overall a complete mystery to humans. Yeah. We, we don't know what they mean, what they are really. And I love the idea of exploring dreams because they can be perceived as like the true inner workings of our mind and our emotions. And that's what this movie is heavily about is emotion. Yeah. You, you really um, connect to the character of Cobb in a profound way. Um, and what actually happened was DiCaprio actually worked on the script with Nolan um, to really flesh out the character um, and to make him more emotionally um, personal and um, have a better um, character arc for the audience to connect with him. Because you do care for him. You care for his family. You want him to get back to his family, which is the driving force of the story. And when he does finally succeed, you're, you're happy for him. And when you, when you look back on it, this movie really is just about different realities. Yeah. And spectacle versus questions of reality and how pretty much everything is just subjective to us mm. to each other and the ending of this movie if you want to just jump right to yeah, it because everyone knows up so we all know the ending of the movie where it cuts while his diadem is still spinning and the mm-hmm. diadem is the the object which tells whether or not the person's in a dream or not and um 
it doesn't matter whether Cobb it doesn't matter whether Cobb woke up or wasn't. Mm. What happens is Cobb is finally happy and he accepts whatever reality he's in. He's no longer obsessing over his dreams. That's why he yeah. walks away from the diadem and doesn't yeah. wait for it to fall because he sees his children's faces, which he hasn't seen yeah. in a reality before. Mm. And so he's accepted whatever he's in. If he's awake or he's not, if he's still asleep, he's accepted that reality, which means and possibly means that all realities are valid. Mm. All these dream realities are valid. And uh, Inception was, of course, influenced by other movies like James Bond's yeah. The Matrix and uh, this Japanese anime film called Paprika. Existence, Cronenberg's movie. And um, a lot of people compare Paprika and Inception specifically. They mm. say that Inception like kind of ripped it off. Yes, there's a lot of similar shots, like specifically the shot where Ellen Page's character the has glass. that glass wall and it smashes. That basically is a shot for shot mm. from Paprika. But like where as Paprika is a surrealist film, Inception is a film that's just inspired by surrealism. Yeah. And the the idea and concepts for this movie are so so big and large and hard to believe where he really grounds it by using a lot of handheld camera work and by using, like we've said in all his other movies, practical effects and practical set pieces. Um, for example, let's talk about the hallway fight, which I think is probably the best action sequence ever made. And um, it's so it's so good that it looks fake, but... In order to achieve the effect, they actually built uh, a completely rotating set of the hallway, which they were able to rotate 360 degrees, um, and it, this caused the actors to, the, the this gave the actors the ability to walk on the ceiling and in the walls and to fall down the shaft. You know what I mean? Yeah, and because he's this is all happening because again, Chris Nolan and his obsession with different storylines and 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 time arcs where. At the same time that this is happening in the real world where everyone's awake, there's something else happening. So like yeah. that's when there's a reason why the, the gravity shifts yeah. are happening. The van's tumbling over and spinning, so that's why the hallway's tumbling and spinning. And yeah. Joseph Gordon Level is just like, what the fuck's going on? Fighting, yeah. fighting on walls and ceilings, which yeah. is so cool to see. And then when the the van reverses off the bridge to get the kick to wake everybody up, and then there's this awesome sequence where Joseph Gordon Levitt has to figure out how to make everyone fall without gravity yeah. he's got no gravity and he has mm. that great line he's like how do i make you fall without, without gravity? gravity or i hate to see out of control <laughs> but um it's just so cool to watch this joseph gordon levitt's just like floating around hallways he's yeah. not in space he's not in outer space he's not on like a spaceship with zero g he's just floating around a normal set with no gravity which you've never yeah. really seen before yeah, never seen i don't him. think i've ever seen that in a movie before yeah and it's just so cool to watch how he figures it out. They actually put Ellen Page's hair in a bun because they didn't know what to, how to depict her hair in zero G well, practically. Zero, that, well, that's smart because yeah. that's one thing that Gravity, Alfonso Cuaron's movie, which they obviously didn't because it'd be ridiculous. But when yeah. you're in space, your hair is just like floating yeah, everywhere. But um, I, I love that scene because, again, practical effects. They're hanging Joseph Gordon-Levitt from wires for like two and a half weeks to yeah. film just this one scene yeah. of, of it all going on. And a lot of it's done. There's this, They fix the camera to the floor. It's static, but the actors are just going all over the place. So the hallway, we don't see it moving, but we see the actors just going all over. And it's an amazing effect. And it looks so re so good, it looks fake. Mm -hmm. But they really did it in person. And another thing that kind of blows my mind that they did in real, in real life is um, in the third act when they're at the uh, that Tundra environment, mm -hmm. um, they actually set off a real avalanche for the shot when the avalanche takes over the the 
the environment. I believe that. He actually, they set up explosives and caused a real avalanche to happen. And DiCaprio said, oh yeah, so we're, we're just filming this scene and then I guess it's just another day in a Nolan movie where we set off an avalanche. <laughs> <laughs> and just like Memento, Chris Nolan opens up Inception with the ending of the movie. Yeah. The end of the movie is the opening of the movie yeah. where where Cobb wakes up on a beach offshore. Mm. We don't realize where he is yet. We don't He realize, doesn't even realize where he, where he is yeah, yet. We don't realize that he's actually in a dream and he's yeah. actually going to save He's in limbo. Yeah, he's he's in the limbo where Ken Watanabe's character has been stuck. Yeah. And Ken Watanabe doesn't even recognize him until they start talking. Cuz he's been stuck in limbo for like 50 years. At least cuz he's an old old man yeah, waiting filled to with die regret. alone. <laughs> and he finds the talisman. So he yeah. Nolan again just confuses you the whole movie and you got to pay attention when you watch his film specifically inception and memento where again mm-hmm. the ending of the movie is in the beginning yeah and it's just so fascinating that he just takes these storylines and they're all over the place because it opens up at the end of the movie then it cuts to the beginning of the movie yeah and then where he's inside another dream at a yeah. different time yeah, yeah a different version of, of ken watanabe's character exactly dreams. yeah so it's just definitely obviously it's it's, car- it's confusing your first time watching it but the more you the, the more freedom you give yourself in watching it um it's great on second and third and fourth viewings. But the, the concept is fascinating. Yeah, and this uh, this movie won the uh, Oscar for cinematography, d- deservedly so. And um, his use of depicting slow motion was fantastic in this movie because it's a, it's a vital part of telling the story is being able to depict slow motion because what's happening because it shows the time difference between when you're in the, you're in one dream down, the when when you're in second dream, the first dream is in slow motion for you in real time. So they have to be able to depict that visually for the audience, and they did a, a, a great job of showing that to keep us um, up, up to speed with what was going on um, in the story. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's so many visually stunning scenes in this movie, like when Leo's, when Cobb's teaching Ellen Page's character yeah. about how to dream, build dreams and dream worlds, and like they're sitting at that outdoor cafe, cafe, and everything like slows down, and then people start noticing them and stuff like that, but then yeah. all the all the things around them, the props and everything start blowing up yeah. around them and then everything just... Most of that was real crumbles. effects. Yeah. That was in, in camera. So, so many cool things they did with with, yeah. with uh, the filming. Yeah. And then there's that scene right, af- right after that where she's able to manipulate the architecture of the city and flip it over. And I remember seeing that in the trailer and just being blown away by that. And yes, we've seen it in Doctor Strange comic yeah. books, yeah. everybody. I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> Chris Nolan is a big fan of James Bond. And so you could really see the... Uh, the large scope international feel of an espionage feel of this movie. Um, and also in terms of the third act where he sets it in that, that Arctic tundra and the, all the bad guys are, are, it seems like they're like bad guys in a Bond it's movie. Like a James Bond action yeah, sequence. Exactly. Yeah. And he actually based it off of uh, his favorite James Bond movie, Her Majesty's Secret Service. There's a similar um, climactic uh, environment as that scene. Yeah. So it, it shows that his love for James Bond and maybe he'll make a James Bond movie soon. And also that giant set, that that tower that um, blows up at the climax of the movie, that was actually a miniature that they built in a parking lot. And then um, it's probably maybe 100 feet tall. And so they really blew that up in a parking lot and, and uh, digitally put it into the movie. And it looks real because it is real. Yeah, so this is overall incredible script, yeah. incredible movie, really deep ideas about reality and subjective realities and perception of your reality. Mm. Um, it's a really challenging film. Uh, it still leaves people, like we said, wondering what it's about and wondering what the ending is. And again, ambiguous ending. It's open-ended. For me, I like to think that Cobb, you know, woke up. 
Yeah. And this is not a dream. But again, like I said earlier, it doesn't matter if he woke up or not. He's accepted his reality. Yeah. He's accepted where he is in mm. this time and in this reality. And so that's he's going to live it. Yeah. And there's also this, this fun theory where this movie is a, a movie about filmmaking, where each character plays a different role on a film set, where Cobb is the director and Eames is the actor and Ariadne is the uh, production designer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they all have like a different role that could uh, relate to a film set. Who's JGL, like the stunt coordinator? I would say props. <laughs> yeah, props to Farming Me, special effects. <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's pretty fun. And then uh, executive producer is Michael Caine's character. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Ken Watanabe is the, uh, the the production company. He's the funder. He's the, he's the studio. <laughs> again, just an amazing movie. We've all seen it. Um, again, we could talk about it forever, but yeah. let's move on. Let's move on. To The Dark Knight Rises 2012. Which I love. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of people aren't too high on this movie, yeah. and, like of the trilogy. And I understand people's qualms with it. There are questionable parts to the movie, but I just think this movie is a great conclusion to the trilogy. Um, and I was extremely satisfied when it was over. Yeah, I mean, I thought yeah, it's my, if I had to rank the three Batman movies of Chris Nolan's universe... Which is the best and the worst? This is number three for yeah, me. I would but that's agree. not saying it's a bad movie. Yeah, I not love by this a long movie. Shot. I remember when the trailer came out for this movie and we watched it like ten times in yeah. a row, and it was just blew me away. Like Bane with like blowing up the Steelers Stadium. Yeah, yeah. And just like it looks so good, um, amazing. And uh, Tom Hardy's Bane is absolutely terrifying, and yeah. he, he did a phenomenal job bringing this character that we knew about. Yeah, had seen pretty weird renditions of him on film and on cartoons, and then yeah. brought him into a realistic world, and he became. An iconic performance like Heath Ledger's Joker, not if not in like excellence of acting, he did a yeah. great job. Big, but like, big shoes to fill, but, but he did a great job. In terms of like notoriety of the role, it's yeah. very popular and yeah. people love it. His voice is great. Um, his, his physicality is great. That Tom Hardy, I think, is five inches shorter than Christian Bale, but they made him look huge. Yeah. Um, and also, I, I absolutely love the design of the mask. I think one of the reasons why it works so well was that mask is just frightening looking and and interesting looking and um. It has a practical effect for him to keep the uh, the medicine uh, entering his uh, entering his his nose and mouth so he can breathe it in. But it was just an iconic image that mask of Bane because in in the old cartoon shows and in the movie it was just like a, a a Mexican wrestler mask. But like also like with tubes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Like it was cool. He never involved involved with you see him injecting anything. No tubes or nothing. Yeah, exactly. He's just always wearing the mask. <laughs> And it was like he had such a great inter- introduction with that with that plane sequence, and when his mask is fi- when the uh, the head cover is finally pulled off and you see Bane for the first time, and oh my, it was terrifying. You it, look like a big guy for, for you. you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I know they overdubbed his voice after the initial reactions to the trailers in the opening scene, but I actually prefer it. Well, with Tom Hardy's actual on-set dialogue. Yeah, I, I loved it. I remember we saw the trailer. And yeah, I and you were like, yeah, this is amazing. It's like, fantastic. Yeah, it's kind of hard to hear, but like, it's part of the character. Yeah. I loved it. I, yeah. I'm bummed that they had to re-record the audio for it. Yeah, I think it, it, it would have worked just as well. Um, but he was, I think he was a, a great villain, and it was great to see um, Batman. We talked about the fight in a previous podcast, but just to see him get physically dominated by another character we've never seen before on screen. Yeah. Um, and we're introduced to uh, Catwoman yeah. by Anne Hathaway, who yeah. did an awesome job bringing She's an iconic character to screen. So good as Catwoman. She's her own take. You know, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer did a great job, but this is like a new version of Catwoman, which yeah. we loved. And I mean, Halle Berry did a great job, too. Mm-hmm. But I loved I loved Anne Hathaway as Catwoman. I thought she did a great job. Yeah. And, and she's very charismatic and, very and sultry. perfect for the role. Yeah. 
she can handle herself. I, I thought it was a great rendition of the character. Yeah, there's a lot of fun, the fun back and forth between Batman and her, especially the first scene when she steals the pearls. Yeah, and he like he's like, "What the hell?" And then she jumps out the window. Yeah, I'm like, if I had qualms with this movie, it's really kind of just that like Batman gave up on everything mm. when his nuclear plan didn't work, and he kind of is just hiding. I mean, I know it's a, an effective way to tell the story and, the, yeah. and bring the character back, but I, I just wasn't a huge fan of it. Not that I don't hate it. Not that I hate it or anything. It's just like if I had to change one thing, I would have. I would have done it a little differently rather than you know Bruce Wayne hiding out from everybody yeah. in, his, in his mansion. I understand. I understand your opinion, but I loved it. Um, and they turn him into this uh, Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes type figure. Um, so a recluse. Nolan ended up getting to make his aviator movie. <laughs> um, but I, I really liked that part of the character. I thought it was like it was very unexpected. Um, and it showed the uh, physical and emotional toll that being Batman has had on him. Mm-hmm. And he only comes into, he only becomes Batman again because he has to. You know what I mean? Because as well, as you learn in this movie, and again, spoiler, spoiler alerts. Um, so, so Batman, and Nolan hints at this in Dark Knight, Batman's not supposed to be a permanent solution to Gotham's problems. Yeah. He's a temporary solution, a temporary fix which he hopes to pass the mantle on somehow. Yeah. So Batman's just a symbol yeah. for the good and a beacon of hope he for Gotham City. He hints at it. He says it in Batman Begins. Yeah. He said, yeah. In, in Dark Knight, they reiterate it where he's at dinner with Harvey Dent. Yeah. And um, so Batman obviously sacrifices himself in this movie. So Batman dies, but Bruce mm. Wayne doesn't die. Yeah. Bruce Wayne survives. Yeah. But he he kills Batman symbolically to act as a beacon of hope and again a symbol for Gotham City. Yeah. So again, Batman was never meant to be a permanent solution. Yeah. And to put Batman, break his back, and to put him in the same prison that Talia and Bane were trapped in yeah. really proves how great in, in, of a person and symbol that Bruce Wayne is to Gotham and to the world where he is able to escape from this bottomless pit in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I, that was one of my favorite set pieces in the trilogy. They, they really built that giant set, and it, it looks incredible. And those scenes in the prison where he, he's trying to get back to strength um, then the in the inmates chant that Deshi Deshi Basara Basara, um, and him trying to climb up the wall, um, great sequence, um, and it was it, it was a metaphor for him. He he lost what made him Batman, which is why he failed when he fought Bane, and so in the prison he gains that will back, and that's why he's able to escape, and that's why he's able to take down Bane at the end. So it's his character arc, um, is great in this movie. It's probably the most. Uh, the biggest character arc since the Batman Begins, and it's a great ending to the character. Yeah. Marion Cotillard as Talia Al Ghul, yeah, so good in this movie. She's an awesome villain because every time I see her pop up in an old movie, I'm like, she's, she's a, bad, be a guy. bad guy. She's a bad guy because you know she's Maul in Inception. She's really a bad guy in that film, even though her character isn't really an evil person. Mm. He used Talia as a way to connect it to the first, the first film, Batman Begins, with the um, League of Shadows. So it all tied together to Ra's al Ghul's original plan in the first Batman. And then we got uh, a familiar face here. We got Joseph Gordon-Levitt comes into the universe, uh-huh. and he plays um, a cop. And Blake, remember. James Blake. Yeah, James Blake, the cop James Blake from the comics. And he eventually figures out who Batman is, yeah. low-key. Because he's an only, orphan, too. <laughs> the only person in Gotham who figured it out. Um, yeah, because they're orphans. Like, man, I'm an orphan. I, I saw could, the look in your eyes. I saw that look. I'll say that's a... That's a questionable part of the movie yeah so that's kind of eh but um it's, it's essential and yeah. then it's kind of like a partner for batman sort of he kind of plays yeah. like sort of like a robin-esque role in this film yeah james blake 
and he helps Batman out. And, and eventually, the ending of the movie, which is a great shot where he ends up in the Batcave and uh, entering it, and then he gets the platform rises. And then Hunter <laughs> Goosebumps. It was great. Yeah. I love how everyone's like, oh my God, Joseph Gordon Levels, it's the new Batman. They're going to do Nightwing or whatever. It's yeah, like, yeah. dude, he just ended the movie. Yeah, he's not making another one. He, there, ha- there doesn't have to be a sequel to yeah. every goddamn movie out yeah, there. It's exactly. okay to just, just end it. Where's the post credit scene? <laughs> <laughs> I love how he ends it like that. Again, yeah. ambiguous ending. You get to create it. Yeah. Did he become Batman? Did he just go home and like jerk off? Like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want this responsibility, Bruce. <laughs> Can I just have the, Lamborg- the, the Lamborghini? That's fine with me. But uh, <laughs> is he going to be Nightwing? It's fine. It's over. It's yeah, over. It's yeah. done. Chris Nolan wiped his hands of Batman. Yeah. And he did a phenomenal job with the yeah. trilogy. It's one of the best trilogies of all time. Absolutely. It's up there. And then I just want to touch on Michael Caine really steals every scene he's in in this movie. And it gets to that emotional scene where he abandons Bruce Wayne because he doesn't want him to continue his quest for Batman because he knows it's going to lead to his death. Um, and then he, he leaves Bruce Wayne. And then watching, Mike, watching Alfred cry at, at the cemetery... Looking at his tombstone, uh, I was I was weeping. Oh, I cried during yeah. this movie, yeah, for sure. And then, I, a lot of people have problems with it, and a lot of people think it's a dream, which I think is stupid. You're thinking too much about Inception. But when Alfred goes to Italy to that cafe, and he sees Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle, and they just give each other that nod, like, oh, I, I loved it. It was Again, great. Yeah, Bruce Wayne survived. Yeah. Bruce Wayne saved Gotham City yeah. by creating Batman, then killing Batman. Yeah. But I love Rises. Um I think it's a fantastic movie and a great ending to the trilogy. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Tom Hardy's the man. Yeah. Again, Chris Nolan just loves to cover his face, though. (laughs) All right, that concludes the Batman trilogy. Now it's time to move on to Interstellar. Love it. Which we got the script for right here. Look at that. It's pretty cool. Shooting script, and it also has uh, the uh, behind the scenes photos and stuff. Behind the scenes photos and storyboarding. Very cool. Anyways, uh, this is a phenomenal space journey film. Mm. Maybe Nolan's least Nolan movie. So, mm. like, there's not really nonlinear storytelling. Um, we're basically following just one character yeah. the whole time. It's not an ensemble. He's yeah. in, he's, Cooper's in every scene. Yeah. Connie's in every scene. Um, maybe, like, a few scenes. He's, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Chastain scenes. has her own thing. Yeah. But mostly it's just following Cooper the whole time. Yeah. Which is, you know, you don't really see. You usually see other perspectives in Nolan movies. Mm. Um, it's in space. Yeah. Which is awesome. And space is the shit. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, McConaughey plays a former NASA pilot who has to go on a Save the World mission to mm. colonize uh, another planet. And we learn that um, the Earth is running out of food. Um, and this mission is a, a chance for them to... Uh, Find a new new place for um, humans to live, and uh, it's a not revenge based, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of rare. He does not long. have a wife though; yeah, she's gone. Yeah, um, it's a it's an emotional story though. It yeah. really is. This movie, I think, is his most personal movie because of the connection between Cooper and his daughter. Um, that that really pulls you into the movie. It's the heart of the movie. Um, and it's what emotionally connects you to Cooper. Yeah, it's about love. And yeah, I think Anne Hathaway Hathaway's character says in the movie that yeah, what transcends time and space in different dimensions is love. Yeah, according to the movie. Yeah, and um, this this is a very scientific film, and uh, specifically uh, physicist Kip Thorne aided in 
the science and theories behind the script and the story. Mm. And this movie actually led to multiple scientific papers being written about it mm. and its ending. He actually created uh, the mathematics to uh, depict uh, authentic, realistic uh, visual representation of a black hole. Yeah. And it was accurate because when we got the image of the black hole earlier this year, it looked just like the black hole in Inception. Pretty smart guy. Yeah. And um, I really love this movie. And again, another, but a theme that Nolan plays around with again in this film is time. Mm. And specifically, when they go to that planet. So they go to that planet and you deal with relativity. And it's like every, what, like minute? Every, every hour is a year or something like that. In Earth? Or, yeah. or like every something minute is like a year in Earth. Yeah, yeah something like that. Yeah. And um, the a cool thing that, that Nolan does in that scene is he has the constant ticking of an actual watch that yeah. he recorded playing the whole time throughout that scene. It's used a lot in the score, and it's actually um, Hans Zimmer recorded Christopher Nolan's actual pocket watch for that effect. And it's a really effective way to, to tell the audience that time's running out, or like you gotta yeah, hurry the hell up. Exactly. Get out of there. And um, this movie practically is an amazing achievement because Nolan's achieving as much as he can in camera. Yeah. And so the ship, when they're mounting cameras on the ship and displaying like these high resolution images on like of a screen. Yeah, so for the actors so for the actors when they're in the cockpit, they're not seeing just the the shooting crew in the background through the windows. They uh, they projected images of space to help aid the actors in understanding what the environment they were supposed to be in was. It's kind of similar to what they did with First Man. They yeah, kind of same, the same thing. thing. Yeah. Mounting cameras on an actual ship. Yeah. Kind of, I wouldn't say they copied it, but it's just a, a, a really effective method to yeah. make it seem realistic. And they actually built uh, the actual spaceships, especially for when they landed on that water planet. That was actually, They actually built that and used a crane to drop it into the water. They actually built TARS, the uh, the robot. Yeah, those are real. And it was uh, puppeteered by an actor the entire time. He's Sometimes act- CGI, yeah. but mostly yeah. practical. Most of the time it's practical. And the robots are also based off modern art. Yeah. They don't look like anything other robot you've ever seen. Yeah, very unique, uh, u- new take on robots. They also built that giant wave that killed everybody. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but I think my favorite set piece in the movie is the Tesseract at the end. Oh, absolutely. They actually built that, and they, used, uh, they put McConaughey on wires for the filming of it. And when you see the when you see the scene play out on on screen, it, it's like that has to be CGI. There's no way that's real. But in fact, it is a giant set that they built, and it's brilliant. It looks amazing. Yeah. And Cooper, he's such an interesting character. He's like this cowboy fighter jet pilot, yeah. or NASA pilot, and he has to go on this mission to save the world. And he's abandoning his family and abandoning his daughter. And um, it's one of the most emotional scenes in the movie is when he's leaving. And she's telling him to stay. Yeah, he, she's, he's holding her in the bedroom. Yeah, and yeah. she doesn't want him to go. And then he says that line like, hey, we might even be the same age when I get back here. Yeah. She's like, you don't know when you're coming back because yeah. he doesn't know when he's coming back. Yeah. And for him at the moment, his he wants to sort of recklessly be a pilot again mm-hmm. and, and work on a mission. But also, he does want to save the world for his for his daughter and yeah. her daughter, his daughter's future. And then ironically, he gets out into space and he's on this on this ship and he's surrounded by the vastness of space mm. and emptiness of it. And it helps him. It focuses him him on what really matters most to him, and, and it's the love of his family and the love of his daughter, yeah. which he has constant struggle with, especially when they come back from the planet where he's lost twenty years of life yeah. on Earth, and his daughter's grown up. Yeah, and that's what the tesseract represents. He, it's it's his connection to his daughter through. Um, through gravity across different um, dimensions, and that's why he's able to to get those messages to her across the entire space of the universe. You know what I mean? And through time, through time. And it's a great sequence when 
he's using the books as Morse code and she's, she's figuring it out with the watch and everything. Great, really brilliant way to do it. Another like really clever practical effect that he used in this film is um, to have the actors seem like they're in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. He didn't use wires or nothing yeah. when they're on the ship. He just had them just like, yeah, just like balance. So he just had them pretend just like standing there. You just have a medium wide close up shot yeah. of somebody and they're just like, they don't, they don't need to be on a wire. You don't have yeah. to be in a wire. It works yeah. just as well. Yeah. And I remember that I saw an interview of like Anne Hathaway where they're like, yeah. how'd you do it? He's like, oh, they just made you go like this. She's like, I went on one leg and was just like, Ugh. it's effective. It looks, it real. works. It looks real. And I'm not going to lie. Um, I, I, we talked about this in the other podcast where like the most shocking moment of the film was when Matt Damon, Pops mega out. superstar, comes yeah. out of the chamber. Yeah. And it's just a, a mind-blowing moment. Mm-hmm. And it's still to this day, every time I watch the movie, I still always forget that Matt Damon's in the movie <laughs> until it comes up. And it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the film, but also deals with that internal struggle of of fear of death yeah. and, uh, and survival. Not, wanting, not wanting to be alone. Yeah. And yeah, survival, where Matt Damon's willing to risk, his character's willing to risk the survival of the human race just to maybe be saved yeah. from this emptiness planet, yeah. even though he's the one that came up with the mission. And he was like originally like the best of us, like the best astronaut, the best leader. And he, based on his fear of death, he turned into the villain. Again, like Harvey Dent. Yeah. He becomes a villain. Mm. And it's, it's really... Uh, and then he attacks McConaughey and tries to kill yeah. him too. And first and of all, he tricks him about saying the planet um, has, has areas which you can grow uh, vegetation. It's habitable. Habitable, yeah. Um, I think one of the... Visually, one of the best aspects of this movie is um, he shot most of this film with IMAX cameras. But the thing with IMAX cameras is they're they're extremely large and heavy, so they always have to be fixed onto something. But with this, they went handheld, and Hoyt Van Hoytema himself personally threw the IMAX cameras on his shoulder. And he's a big guy. He's like 6'2", and he's uh, pretty big. So he was able to handle the weight of the IMAX cameras. So it was the first time a feature film was made with handheld shots with an IMAX camera. Must have been doing some deadlifts Dude, before filming. Absolutely, <laughs> it's a the heavy piece must, of equipment. Yeah, Nolan's so anti CGI that um, the scene where Cooper and his kids are chasing down that that little uh, drone the plane, or the whatever, drone, yeah, um, and they're driving through the cornfields. This huge cornfield, yeah, which they actually grew for the movie. Yeah, they grew this corn for the movie, and Chris Nolan's like, yeah, "We're gonna grow. We're not gonna use CGI." Yeah, and then he sells the corn. Yeah. and made a profit. Yeah, they made a profit. It. <laughs> it's like so smart and awesome. It just makes it so much better because you really see the corn. They're really driving through the corn. Yeah, but um, one of my favorite scenes, not just in this movie, but like in in film in general, mm. is the docking scene. Yeah, where Cooper. Has to after Matt Damon's ruined the the ship and he created that explosion and he uh, went out of the ship when it wasn't properly pressurized mm. and it blew up and then Cooper has to somehow dock the ship that's spinning uncontrollably so with fast his, with his yeah. spaceship yeah and this the, the scene's amazing because there's the stakes are are never been higher in a movie you yeah. know it's just the the fate of humanity rests on the, his shoulders to dock this ship yeah and then Anne Hathaway's like what are you doing and then uh. Tars is like you Tars can't is, do it. Tars is like <laughs> we says no time for caution, yeah, right? Or something yeah, like yeah. that. So that's the name of the, the the music playing in the background too. But just getting up there and spinning with the organs playing Hans Zimmer's score, yeah, and then docking the ship onto that spinning uh, other sh- uh, station, yeah, it just blows my mind every time I see it. And I'm just like getting goosebumps thinking of it. And it looks great because it's all it's all real tangible um, pieces. There's no CGI. They built miniatures for that. Um, so it, it really, it looks fantastic and believable. It's funny because the spacesuits, they kind of look like what SpaceX spacesuits look yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, Like they, they must've watched, Inter- Elon probably watched Interstellar like, oh, that's oh, a yeah, pretty I cool like design. I like, I like that. I like these elements. I like these elements. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
And it's got this great bit after he gets out of Tesseract and he, he winds up and he's in the future. And he's on this new uh, envir- space environment where humans are living on now. And the it's a, a cylindrical giant oval. And you can see like in the background, like when he's in, it looks like it's like Kansas again. But like when you look in the distance, the earth is is tilted upwards and spans all the way up. Oh, the ship. Yeah. So he's, it's like he saved humanity. And he, he gets to see that he... Uh, humanity survived because of his actions. And they're, they're starting to colonize different parts of the solar system. Yeah. And I just love the shots of um, the ship traveling through the solar system are amazing because people don't understand like how big the universe Spaces. is. But not they don't understand how big the, just our, our solar system is. Not yeah. our galaxy, just the solar system. And how long it takes just to get anywhere. Yeah. And, and Nolan does a great job like these shots where it's just like this tiny tiny little ship yeah and it's just flying past like saturn or something yeah. like that and it just looks so cool just in the milky way galaxy there's 350 million stars yeah that's a lot of stars it's a lot of stars a lot of, a lot of solar systems yeah and it, i think my one of my favorite shots is when the ship starts streaking into the black hole and it's that that's that streaking light and it's going so fast and it's just that music builds up and you're like what's gonna happen he's going into a black hole then when he goes through the black hole by himself, and then also it's, it reminds me of 2001 A Space Odyssey mm-hmm. when um, the astronaut's traveling through space and time as well. And, like, Kubrick did that great thing with, like, the lighting and the uh, mm-hmm. lasers lo- yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And then Chris, like, worked off that but did it more practically. Like, yeah. there's, like, the shots of the um, the sparks from, mm-hmm. from some something. It looks, like it's, it looks like they just put a camera below sparks flying yeah. out and yeah, it's yeah. just, like, falling down. Yeah. But I love this movie. I think it's his most most emotional movie. It was great to see him uh, tackle the sci-fi plane. Um, he did, I mean, Inception sci-fi, but to actually do something like tackling space, um, great take on it. Um, and I love this movie. I love the score. I love everything about it. Ambiguous ending. Ambiguous what ending. Happened? Yeah. Did he go find Anne Hathaway? Did we'll he go see. find her? We're going to make it up for ourselves. I think he found her. And then, they, her. and then they started a family. Yeah, yeah. You got you to gotta repopulate that planet. Yeah, repopulate. I mean, yeah. they got the embryos in the sperm, <laughs> but, you know, there's this some other way you can do it. <laughs> Take that space. We're the last, two, the last people on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you want to move on? Let's do it. All right, we got one more movie because, again, we're not talking about Tenet because we can't see it. Dunkirk. Which is not only one of Nolan's best movies, but it's one of the best f- war films ever made. Absolutely. Especially, and it's a modern masterpiece, this yeah. movie. And um, this was the first time Nolan actually got nominated for Best Director. Which is insane. It's crazy. Absolutely blows my mind. Yeah. But this got nominated for a lot of awards, and I think it won five Oscars. Yeah. And so Nolan took his time manipulation and different storylines, and you took it to a new level here. Yeah. In a way that I've never seen before, and your first viewing, you're kind of confused what's going on. Yeah, because it's not explained to you. Yeah, because he's telling the story from three different elemental perspectives, land, air, and water. Yeah, so what happened at Dunkirk was, um, so the, the British Army is trapped at the Dunkirk beach, and the Germans are closing in on, in on them, and the only way they can the British can survive is if they find a way to travel across this huge body of water and get back to England. And then, so what happened was these soldiers spend a week on the beach, and then the fighter pilots spend an hour flying to the beach, and then anyone who took a boat to rescue the the soldiers um, spent a day um, traveling across the water. Yeah, so it's called a triptych yeah. from three different perspectives. Yeah, 
And um, yes, against World War II rescue mission that actually happened of uh, the Allied British and French forces that were trapped on the coastal beaches of Dunkirk, France, yeah. from the invading Nazi army. And something I love that Nolan does in this movie, you never really see Nazis. No, you don't really you don't see, see them at all. They're out of focus when you do see them yeah. finally at the end. Yeah, so you don't really see them, um, which I, I really like. That's what he. I like how he did that. And this movie's also, it's really a survival film yeah. more than anything. Survival it's, of just, it's a representation of England's survival. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And France. Because this was a decisive turning point for the war because if they, if the Nazis ended up closing in on them and, and killed all of these soldiers, um, there's no way that Europe could have won over to the Nazis. Yeah, and it blows my mind that we never really learned about this at school at all. And the first time, before the movie came out, I, I read a book on Dunkirk. It just absolutely blew my mind. And mm-hmm. it's it's such an integral part to the the of the, the Allied forces beating the Nazi party. And I love it. But so something that people have issues with this film is uh, very minimal dialogue. It's a very short script in... Um, a lot of people have issues with it because there's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of talking. But Chris Nolan understands that not only do you not need dialogue to tell a story, this story doesn't need dialogue because this is mm-hmm. a story about physicality and it's about action. Yeah. And he's trying to make it realistic to like what these people were like on the beach. Yeah. Like they're not talking to each other. They're they're scared for their lives. Yeah. And they're, they're desperately waiting for for someone to rescue them. They think they're gonna die. They didn't even know what was happening. They're not going to just be talking about normal stuff and, and yeah. random things. You don't need dialogue to tell that story. This film could work as a silent picture. It could. No problem. And um, what's actually really cool about this is uh, Nolan shot on the actual beach where the actual Allied forces were trapped. It's it's completely the the same exact spot. It's incredible. And they even built the mole, that, that, that bridge that they walk out onto, that they actually constructed that for the film. But there's so much practical set pieces in this movie um, like they actually, sh- they actually sank a ship for that, uh, for that ship that sinks in, um, there's that amazing shot where the ship's sinking and it's tilting over. And then there's, there's, he fixes the camera on the side of the boat. And then there are, there are soldiers that are trying to climb away. And then the water just starts rushing and it just, it's a sideways shot and the water just like overtakes the shot. Mm-hmm. It's, it's probably the best shot of the movie. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Plus he did a bunch of things where like to make it seem like there's a ton of soldiers on the beaches. He just had like dummies out there. They had like, cardboard cutouts. Yeah, cutouts yeah. of human beings. Yeah. That, like in the shot from 200 yards away, you're not yeah. going to know what it is if yeah. it's human or not. And they were setting off real explosions on the beach near the actors. And I think the, the, the most effective practical, practical effect in this movie is obviously strapping IMAX cameras onto yeah. those Spitfires. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It's cool. They, they use this really cool like pulley dolly system with the, with the planes with the camera strapped to it, and Chris Nolan and some other guy yeah. were, were the ones that were, like, moving yeah. the ship around and yeah. telling it what to do, which yeah. is really cool. Yeah. And they're actually filming it, like, with the real ship. Yeah, right and there. it was so effective because you never, you've seen dogfights before, but you never felt like what it was like to be in a, in a Spitfire mm-hmm. and to actually, like, see what it's like to actually shoot another plane down. Realistically. Realistically. And it, it, how hard it was, how crude the technology was. It was just a little, just an iron sight right there. And, um... And Tom Hardy um, obviously says very little in this movie, and his, his face is covered most of the time. But he's he's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, he expresses so much with his eyes. And I thought, like heading into the movie, that Tom Hardy was going to be a Nazi fighter pilot. I didn't uh, know. I didn't really know what he was going to be yeah. heading into the movie. But then you you find out he's a good guy, and it's awesome. And another a problem that people have with the movie, which um, it probably would have helped if he explained it, but I guess he didn't feel it was necessary. Was the reason uh, p- people have problems with the fact that there aren't more um, Spitfires flying around to to save the the people on the beach. But what happened was 
pretty much the entire Air Force was inland, and there were intense Spitfire battles going on inland. So all the Air Force was out there, and so there were only that's why there were only a few uh, planes in Dunkirk the movie because there were only, they didn't have that many left. Yeah. And Chris, with this movie, just really wanted you to feel like what it was like to be each of these type of of soldiers. So yeah. Like, like what it was really like to be one of the Marines on the ground, or like mm. one of the actual pilots, or or the the men and women who were on the ships going to rescue them and everything. Yeah. And it's it's so realistic. And the movie, like the first ten minutes of the movie, I don't think there's any dialogue. Yeah. And he shot the whole thing on uh, IMAX film, mm. a 65, 70, 70 millimeter film, and. As soon as the movie starts and it's just like these close-ups of these kids' faces who are like 20 years old yeah. and they're soldiers. And they're walking through the an- abandoned you just, town. You just feel like you're there. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. And like you feel like you're walking on the beach with them. Yeah. And you see the, the hopelessness in their eyes and how they think they're going to die. And what works so well is that um, Nolan casts a lot, mostly unknown young actors. And they're really young because what happened was back then... Most of the people that made up the armed forces were kids. They were 18, 19 years old. They were inexperienced. So he, he purposely hired inexperienced, very young actors to really sell the point. Like, these were kids who were defending our countries back then. Yeah, when you see, like, a, a World War II movie or something, it's like Matt Damon's in Saving Private Ryan, but he's, yeah. like, 30 in that movie. Yeah, there's the, the people are generally pretty old. It's like yeah. watching a teen movie with... With high schools being played by thirty year olds, yeah, and plus Chris Nolan didn't realize what he did when he cast Harry Styles <laughs> in this movie, but he re- he cast one of the most famous people on the planet, yeah. And I don't think he understood how, how popular yeah. uh, Harry Styles is in the world uh-huh. and how big of a pop star he is, yeah. But like, I'm sure he got some ticket sales from from girls wanting to go see Harry Styles on camera. Oh yeah, when he was cast, I was like Harry Styles, really? But then it was also like in Nolan, we trust. Yeah. You know, he knows what he's doing. Pulled it off. You did a great job. Harry Styles was fantastic in this movie. He he was. Uh, a great part of it, and he he really performed uh, really well, um, and I I loved him in the movie. He was great. Yeah, he he does a great job. He's like a flawed kid who's just yeah. like out for trying to save himself, and yeah. he's bitter and he's kind of angry. Yeah, but he's also you know he's a good guy too at the yeah. same time. He's just trying to survive. Yeah, he did a good job. I yeah. think I, he, I, I think he, he did a great job, job and he's probably going to act more in the future. Yeah. But uh, another aspect, obviously, that works so well in this film is Hans Zimmer's score, mm-hmm. which is in- extremely intense, and he uses the ticking clock again. As a theme for Isn't time there a running, clock up. ticking the whole movie. Pretty much the yeah every bit every sound of music that you hear there's a, there's a talk. There's I, think a clock. There's, I think there's a watch just ticking the entire movie under like very low. Oh really? I, I wouldn't so. be surprised. I think so. And it's uh, Nolan's watch again. I think it's one of uh, Zimmer's best scores. Um, extremely intense, but also um, at the end, at the climax, um, he's got those those soft strings playing, and um, it really brings home like the victory. I, technically, it wasn't a victory, but just escaping um, was a victory in the eyes of uh, Europe. Yeah, it's so interesting how they escaped too. Yeah, like just like the historical significance of it. Like, and um, it's really terrifying. Like the multiple times where the lead characters on the beach, you think they're gonna get out and you think they're gonna get saved, but yeah. every time they're on a boat, just something goes wrong. Yeah, exactly. It gets blown up. Yeah, or it gets turned over, and it's just terrifying. Like mm. the scene where they're all all the kids, all the soldiers are inside that that. That ship and that's they're having the jelly beach, sandwiches. Yeah, no, no, on the beach ship inside. Oh yeah, hiding out from the yeah from the Germans and like bullet holes start piercing the ship and they're all they're all so desperate yeah to get out that they think that they can save this ship that has a hundred bullet holes in it mm. by just plugging it up with their hands. Yeah, not knowing that realize not they're not they don't realize that like no matter what there's nothing you can do this sink is gonna this ship is gonna sink. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's a great scene because it ultimately leads to the connect- connective tissue of. The three storylines, how that connects to 
they become part of that scene where um, Tom Hardy saves that ship from another Spitfire. And then we see, oh, this, these characters were those characters from before, but we didn't see their faces or inside of the ship. So it, it, Nolan cleverly eventually ties everything together in a brilliant way, which is you're kind of confused at first, but when it does come together, you're like, oh, my God, that was genius. Yeah, it's really, yeah a lot of people have trouble following it the first viewing, but the second viewing, you pretty much get it. Yeah. And then the ending is amazing, like where, where they save them, and it's just it's so uplifting. Yeah. And I love the shot where... Tom Hardy's character um, sacrifices himself to keep yeah. fighting and, and protecting the people yeah. and protecting the soldiers. He, he lets himself run out of gas, and then he ends up being captured by the Nazis, yeah. which, again, you don't see like the Nazis' faces or anything. Which yeah. is but it's an amazing shot where he lit the, his plane on fire, and he's just standing there on the beach, and it's that warm light from the flames are glowing on his face. And he's just looking out, he's just looking out and then eventually the Nazis come, off, come onto camera, and then they grab him. Yeah. And the music's playing, and it's an emotional scene um, of the heroism and the sacrifice that character gave to to help um, those people on the beach. Yeah, for any of you kids who don't understand why he, he let his, his plane on fire, just so the Nazis couldn't use it or use yeah, the technology. technology. Yeah, but um, I think this is uh, easily one of Nolan's best movies. It's an absolute masterpiece of a film. One of the one of my favorite war movies of all time, and um, solidified Nolan as one of the greatest directors um, working today because. It was his first time um, in a while working outside of the sci-fi superhero genres. Um, and it's his first historically based film. So being able to make a film in this genre and, and make a great film really solidified his status. Yeah. And we saw this 70 millimeter film at IMAX and it was just one of the greatest film experiences I've ever had in my life. Mm. And it blew me away to see it in that format in person and... If you got to see it on film, you know what I'm talking about. If not, it's still great, but it's it's an amazing film, and I love it. I love it a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm tired. <laughs> We're like two hours in. Yeah, this is a long one. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, we love Nolan. Um, he's one of the greatest directors, and I can't wait to see Tenet, and I can't wait to see the movies he continues to make. Yeah. Again, don't spoil Tenet. We can't see it. Uh, America's in political turmoil, so we can't see anything for at least have, another month. We have something. no idea what's going to happen. We have no idea. We can't even freaking go to a restaurant. <laughs> um, so who knows when they'll open up theaters. We're not going to watch it online. I will not see ten- Tenet, not in theaters, yep. not on film. We might even drive to a different state to watch yeah, it. Yeah, I'll drive to New Mexico to see that. I don't, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. I got to see Tenet. But um, you done? You I'm, good? I'm great. All right, that concludes our episode on Christopher Nolan. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Again, if you want to support us, share our podcast, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Share us with your movie friends. I know you got some of those. If you, if you have friends who like movies, let them know what we're about. Um, you're you're going to help us get seen by more people, leaving those five-star reviews, leaving the written reviews are sex- exceptionally helpful. Um, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, at Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be on top five or top ten serial killer films. Oh, yeah. Coming out on Thursday. It's going to be good. And other than that, have a great start to your week, and uh, see you soon. Thanks, everyone. Take care.